Two shootings, one in Kansas City, the other in New York, are under investigation. In the first, a black teenager went to the wrong address to pick up his siblings. He rang the doorbell, and the resident fired at him through a glass door. In upstate New York, a 20-year-old woman and her friends were looking for a friend's house. They pulled into the wrong driveway and were shot. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. That story coming up. Also, despite calls for a ceasefire, the fighting in Sudan has not let up. The two warring factions are in danger of sucking the country into a wider conflict. Baseball is called the timeless game. There's no clock, no way there is in other sports. In theory, the game could go on forever. Four decades ago in Pawtucket, one game seemed like it would. Baseball puts a lot of emphasis on records. I'm thinking wow, we have a chance here tonight to get in the history books. The story behind the longest baseball game ever, coming up. It's 4.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. We're learning that Dominion Voting Systems and Fox have reached a settlement in a blockbuster defamation case, averting a trial at the last minute. Dominion sued Fox News and its parent company, Fox Corps, over baseless claims the network aired following the 2020 presidential election. Dominion argued that the falsehood, such as the claim that the company's voting machine switched votes from then-President Donald Trump to Joe Biden, damaged its business and credibility, and it sought $1.6 billion, as well as an apology from Fox. Through the legal process, Fox has maintained that it was exercising its First Amendment right to air the claims and that they were newsworthy claims because they came from an inherently newsworthy source, then-President Donald Trump and his allies. Senators are questioning senior members of the Air Force about the recent leak of classified documents. NPR's John McLaughlin reports military officials say... The government is using a multi-pronged approach to examine the specifics of the leak and, more broadly, gaps in security protocol. During a Senate hearing, lawmakers pressed senior Air Force officials to elaborate on how Airman Jack Teixeira could have allegedly accessed, printed, and shared classified information with friends over social media for months without being detected. In response, Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall said he tasked the Air Force Inspector General with reviewing the security protocols within Teixeira's unit, the 102nd Intelligence Wing out of Cape Cod, Massachusetts. There is a full court press going on about this. We're all disturbed about it. Air Force Chief of Staff General Charles Brown Jr. added that Teixeira may have taken advantage of his job as a cyber administrator to access the documents. Jen McLaughlin, NPR News. Southwest Airlines is once again forced to delay flights nationwide this morning. Bill Zebel with member station KERA in Dallas reports a delay this time did not persist like it did four months ago. Technical problems hindered Southwest flights system-wide this morning as passengers from Colorado to Florida complained on social media that they were stuck in their terminals. Southwest said teams worked rapidly to minimize disruptions and it blamed the vendor's failed firewall that led to lost data and connections. By mid-morning, it said normal operations had resumed. Last Christmas, Southwest canceled more than 16,000 flights in a week, blaming IT issues and bad weather. This time, cancellations rose above 1,800 only, a fraction of the holiday numbers. I'm Bill Zebel in Dallas. U.S. stocks trading lower this hour. The Dow Jones Industrial Average down 10 points before the close at 33,976. The Nasdaq was down slightly at 12,153. The S&P 500 up three points. From Washington, this is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. More now on the local impact of the story you heard from about Southwest Airlines from NPR. Nearly two-thirds of all Southwest Airlines flights in and out of Logan Airport today have been delayed. Earlier in the day, the airline halted departures of more than 1,700 flights nationally because of technological problems. Southwest later said a firewall issue caused the airline systems to lose some operational data. Regular operations have resumed, but officials at Logan say residual delays may occur on Southwest flights this evening. Boston City Councilor Kenzie Bach is just weeks away from taking the helm of the Boston Housing Authority. The public housing organization serves roughly 9% of the city's population. She'll inherit a waiting list of more than 40,000 families waiting for housing. WBUR's Amanda Beeland has more. Bach tells WBUR's Radio Boston the key to meeting increased demand for housing is to put more focus on chasing and obtaining federal dollars. And the best way to do that is to take advantage of the so-called fair cloth limit. According to Bach, the city is entitled to 2,500 more units through the federal policy. The city just needs to get the money to fund the initial construction. And I think we really saw in the um, pandemic what a disaster it is when these other problems connect then into housing and security. And so, you know, if we could add 2,500 of those units to our roles, that would just make an enormous difference. Bach says she's also excited to look at new ways to build additional units. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beland. People don't usually have positive memories after a bus fire, but the Fisher College baseball team may be the exception. Nobody was hurt in Sunday's fire in Maryland as the team from the Boston school was returning home from a tournament in North Carolina. Local firefighters who doused the flames later gave the team a place to relax while they waited for another bus to take them back to Boston. Head coach Scott Doolin was the last to arrive at the Baltimore County house fire. By the time I got back to the fire station, our guys were in a buffet line eating barbecue and eating snacks, and some guys were outside playing basketball with the firefighters. Other guys were on the fire truck when I pulled in. Doolin says his team had another tournament, has another tournament coming up down south in a couple of weeks. On the way back, he plans to stop by the same fire station to personally thank the firefighters. This is 90.9 WBUR in the forecast. Cloudy skies overnight tonight. And for tomorrow, sunny skies, temperatures in the mid-40s. It's now 4.06. WBUR supporters include Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool, so drivers can see coverage options at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Scott Detrow in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. We're going to hear the latest on the legal limbo for a commonly used abortion pill and why access to that medication could change as soon as this week. More on that in a few minutes. First, though, the white man accused of shooting a black teenager who simply rang the wrong doorbell in Missouri is back in police custody. 84-year-old Andrew Lester turned himself into Kansas City police this afternoon. It comes a day after authorities issued a warrant for his arrest and charged him with two felony counts for allegedly opening fire unprovoked on 16-year-old Ralph Yarl last Thursday. Yarl survived with gunshot wounds to his head and arm. The lack of immediate charges in the case sparked weekend protests in Kansas City. The city's mayor, Quentin Lucas, has been in touch with Yarl's family and joins me now. Mayor Quentin Lucas, welcome to All Things Considered. It is good to be back with you. First of all, how is Ralph doing? 
I have been astonished, frankly. It is a miracle that he is out of the hospital. He is recovering, despite the fact that Ralph was shot in the head and in the arm. It is something that is just tremendous, thanks to medical professionals here in Kansas City and in his own family, having a number of nurses and others. Mm -hmm. So we know it's a long road ahead, but it has been a good one. Okay. Well, this all started again because Ralph Yarrow was trying to pick up his younger brothers, and he had the wrong address. And police did take Andrew Lester, the accused shooter, into custody on Thursday, but they let him go after a few hours, citing a need to interview Yarrow first. Was that the wrong move in your mind? I think we're going to have a, a pretty thorough review about the steps that, that were taken and ways we could always do better in the future. But what I will say is that thanks in large part to a lot of the public outcry that we heard and the hard work done by detectives, we were very able, quickly able to get charges in. Mm-hmm. But I think there will be real questions about all of that along the way. You mentioned that outcry. Do you think these charges and this arrest would have come without protests and public attention? I think the protests and public attention were, were vital in amplifying the issue. I, I think, heck, it's it's how I largely learned about it as well. So I will not marginalize the work of the people in making sure that this was centered, including Ralph's own family. I think that in our after action is something else we, we need to make sure we look at. I think there was going to be a real thorough investigation done, but I think the speed, I think it has been aided by the fact that there are a lot of people who've been asking questions about why this man was not in custody, why this man was not charged. Mm-hmm. Do you have a timeline for that that kind of review and how direct of a role would you play in it? You know, there are a lot of things that I can do. There are some things I can't, but I certainly have a bully pulpit as a mayor to make sure that we have those conversations. I've been in regular contact with our chief of police, and so I would expect it to be a conversation of days and weeks rather than coming back over it a year from now or two years from now. Step one was trying to get to justice. We saw charges yesterday. I'm very Mm -hmm. happy about that, but I know we have a lot more work to do to get the community more trust. And I want to ask you something about those charges. We know from the police documents that Lester did mention that Yarol was black and said that he was, quote, scared to death when he saw Yarl, but the county prosecutor declined to bring any hate crime charges in this case. Do you agree with that decision? I think there are very serious charges that have been filed here. I am a lawyer, but I don't know the full panoply of potential charges at issue. What I do know is that the 84-year-old defendant, Andrew Lester, faces up to life imprisonment with the charges that have been filed. Mm-hmm. I, I expect him to be convicted, but I, I know there will be more public outcry about hate crimes charges coming up even later today in Kansas City. And we look to, I believe, federal prosecutors who may be making those determinations. You, know, you wrote on Twitter that it's on us to stop something like this from happening. How do you practically get there? You call out racism where it exists. In a lot of states like mine, the state of Florida and so many others, you're seeing this attack on diversity, equity, and inclusion, which as I see is just basically saying, let's have a status quo of racism. Let's make it so folks like this defendant, Andrew Lester, are able to, I think, even just grow in their views of anti-black racism. I've said in a few different forums that, that if... And if the victim, Ralph, were not black, I don't think he would have been shot. Mm -hmm. And I say that from experience lived as a black man in America, as a person in America, and hearing about these stories on your network and others again and again and again. It is in the hearts and minds of people we need to make changes. And then one other change, we cannot just fetishize guns like to the end of time. Everybody is told to just, if you're afraid, bring out Mm -hmm. your gun, brandish Mm -hmm. it. It's a huge issue. That's Kansas City Mayor Quentin Lucas. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you.
And now to another tragedy involving a shooting in front of a home, all due to a mistake. Officials in upstate New York say a homeowner fired a gun into a vehicle that had accidentally turned into his driveway on Saturday, killing a woman inside that car. Lucas Willard of member station WAMC reports. Police say Kaylin Gillis was killed while searching for a friend's house in a rural stretch of Washington County, New York. Sheriff Jeff Murphy spoke to reporters on Monday. The first call came in at 9.53 p.m. on Saturday night. It was a 911 call reporting that a 20-year-old female had been shot. Murphy said when the vehicle carrying Gillis and three friends turned down the wrong driveway, 65-year-old Kevin Monahan came to the door and fired twice at the vehicle. He is being held at a nearby jail on second-degree murder. Murphy said he did not think there was any interaction between Monahan and the people he shot at. This is a, a very sad case of some young adults that were looking for a friend's house and ended up at this man's house who decided to come out with a firearm and discharge him. Hebron, where the shooting took place, is a small town on the Vermont border. Town Supervisor Brian Campbell said he was dumbfounded by the incident. He said he knew Monahan, a local contractor, as normal as can be. Campbell said it's very easy for people to get lost on the back roads of the small community where cell service is spotty at best. You don't know how many times I've been awakened early in the morning, people lost, run out of gas, over a ditch. You go tow them out, put them on their merry way. You never think of your own safety, even. The sheriff said after the shooting, the young people drove for several minutes to get cell service and call for help. An online fundraiser that quickly raised thousands of dollars features a photo of Gillis shared widely since the shooting. Greg Barthelmas, superintendent of the Schuylerville Central School District, where Gillis attended high school, knew Gillis personally. That picture of her speaks volumes to her character, of how she was as a student, very nice, very loving and fun, outgoing. Barthelmas said Gillis was a cheerleader, a member of Future Farmers of America, and an artist. Monahan's attorney, Kurt Mousert, says three vehicles pulled into Monahan's driveway, and his client was frightened when he pulled the trigger. For NPR News, I'm Lucas Willard in Albany. The abortion pill mifepristone remains available in many states and fully on the market today, but that could change soon. NPR's Sarah McCammon joins us now with an update on that. Hey, Sarah. So, I mean, there's been so much back and forth, Sarah, in the courts the past 10 days or so around access to this abortion pill. Can you just remind us where do things stand at this moment? Well, at this moment, an administrative stay from the U.S. Supreme Court is still in effect. It is temporarily preserving the status quo. And that means that mifepristone is still available in states where abortion is legal. It can be sent through the mail in those states. But Elsa, that may not be the case for long. That stay from the Supreme Court, which stems from a federal case out of Texas, it expires late tomorrow night. Tomorrow night. Okay, and then what happens? Well, if the court were to do nothing, as of tomorrow night, mifepristone would still be technically on the market, but with new limitations, at least in some states. Just to back up slightly, this case started with a lawsuit when anti-abortion groups sued the Food and Drug Administration over its approval of mifepristone in 2000. That pill, of course, is used in a majority of abortions in this country now. A conservative federal judge in Texas, Matthew Kaczmarek, sided with that group earlier this month and blocked the FDA approval. The Biden administration appealed. And then 
The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals said Mifepristone could stay on the market, but, but with some significant restrictions, the most important one being it could no longer be mailed. So the Justice Department then went to the Supreme Court. Justice Sam Alito said they would keep things as they are right now until that stay expires tomorrow at 11.59 p.m. But legal experts I've talked to say they think the court will weigh in in some fashion. Wow. OK, what a windy path. That is all what the Justice Department wants at this point. But what are anti-abortion groups asking for? So the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is representing the anti-abortion groups in this case, they're urging the Supreme Court to allow the restrictions from the Fifth Circuit, that lower court, to take effect. So, so that, again, would mean pills could not be sent in the mail. They could only be prescribed up to seven weeks of pregnancy, down from 10. Okay. But even if the Fifth Circuit decision does take effect, it could be complicated also by another lawsuit in play here. You may remember a federal judge in Washington state has said that Mifepristone should remain fully available in the 17 states and D.C. that filed a lawsuit in his court. That conflict between these two cases is something that also could come up before the Supreme Court. Okay, can we just step back for a moment? It's been less than a year since the court overturned Roe v. Wade. What do you think the larger significance is here of, of how the court decides to move forward on this? Yeah, whatever the court does is going to be very closely watched because it could tell us a lot about what to expect, both in terms of this case, abortion pill access, and future cases related to reproductive health. I talked to Greer Donnelly today. She's a law professor at the University of Pittsburgh. And she says, as counterintuitive as it might sound, she thinks the Supreme Court may actually be the friendliest court so far to the Biden administration's arguments here. So the Fifth Circuit um, is more restrained than Judge Kaczmarek, but still extremely conservative. And then you have the Supreme Court, which is the Supreme Court that overturned Roe versus Wade and is, you know, one of the most conservative Supreme Courts we've had in decades, but it's still the least conservative judicial body to hear the case. The court is being asked to consider some procedural issues like standing here, but then there are these bigger picture questions this case raises, Elsa, like whether the courts have the power to overturn the FDA's approval, and that could have implications for lots of other issues. That is NPR's Sarah McCammon. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered in about 15 minutes, a Russian court rejects an appeal against the continued detention of an American journalist who's charged with espionage. And just after that, 40, the 42nd anniversary of the Pawtucket Red Sox longest professional baseball game in history. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Berry & Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. On Wall Street, some volatile trading today, but not a lot of movement by the close. The Dow lost a small fraction of a percent. S&P was up about a tenth of a percent. NASDAQ was down also a fraction of a percent. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 419. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Long Hill in Beverly, hosting world-renowned garden experts in a spring garden symposium, May 6th and 7th. More at thetrustees.org slash longhillsymposium. Tonight, cloudy skies should be breezy down around the low 40s. Tomorrow could make it to the mid-50s as sunshine emerges. Should be a bright day and then another bright day on Thursday. Mainly sunny skies moving to the mid-60s. This is 90.9 WBUR.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Investments. A dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 manage food for work with online ordering from restaurants nationwide, budgeting tools, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Scott Detrow. This, so far, is the sound of the ceasefire in Sudan. Sudan's army is not backing down, and the powerful paramilitary group they're at war with is not backing down either. Nearly 200 people have been killed and thousands more injured after four days of conflict in the capital of Khartoum and across Sudan. The two warring generals at the heart of the conflict have brought one of Africa's largest countries to a standstill. NPR's Emmanuel Akinwotu joins us now from Lagos. Hey, Emmanuel. Hi. And this ceasefire was put in place to try and get some help to millions in need of humanitarian assistance. But so far, it seems the fighting has not stopped, right? Yes, it's, it's actually the second time the ceasefire has been called and at least so far has failed to hold. And the impact on people is profound and getting worse by the hour. You know, the fighting has turned homes in Sudan, residential streets, much of the country into war zones. Some hospitals have been taken over by fighters or are running out of supplies. And there are students trapped in schools, families sheltering at home, struggling for food, struggling for power and, and water. You know, since the conflict started, I've been talking to a woman called Muja Khatib. She's 42 and she's staying alone at home in Khartoum. On yesterday's show, she shared how she's been struggling. You know, she misses her son who can't make it back home because of the fighting. Today, I checked in with her again, just after the ceasefire was meant to start. They said there is a truce now, but there is no truce. I can hear the gunshot and I hear an airplane. Yeah, it's very close. I'm not sure if you can hear the sound of the bombing. I'm in my balcony now. You know, like other people I've spoken to, she's just tired mm -hmm. and so angry that this has been inflicted on them. And by two generals who seem bent on serving their own interests rather than the country's. And I'll just note that we've got a little bit of a delay on the line. But, but tell us more about these two generals. Who are they and what are their endgames here? Well, first, there's General Abdul Fattah al-Bahan. He, he leads the army and is essentially the de facto leader of Sudan. This is him speaking in 2021, promising he'd deliver Sudan's first free elections. And this is Lieutenant General Mohammed Hamad Hamdan Dagolo, or widely known as Hameti. He's effectively been Bahan's deputy up until now. And here he is speaking to Al Jazeera this weekend after the fighting began. He leads the notorious and powerful militia group called the Rapid Support Forces. It largely evolved from the Janjaweed militia that was responsible for atrocities in Darfur. You know, decades of warfare that he led on behalf of the Sudanese government made him extremely wealthy and powerful. 
Both of these men, these generals, they thrived under the old regime, under Omar al-Bashir, and then they helped depose him after the revolution in 2019. That revolution, you know, inspired millions of people in Sudan and the wider world and brought this promise of like a new democratic Sudan. Mm -hmm. But that promise under these men has been squandered. And, you know, after Bashir, there was briefly a civilian-led government, but both these generals actually launched a coup against that government two years ago in 2021. Then they insisted to the Sudanese people and convinced the international community mm -hmm. that they could lead the, the country back to civilian rule. But now we're locked in a war for power and supremacy between them. That's Emmanuel Akinwotu following the latest on Sudan from Lagos, Nigeria. Thank you so much. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. In a courthouse in Moscow today, a judge rejected an appeal against the continued detention of American journalist Evan Gershkovich. This hearing was the first time the Wall Street Journal reporter had been seen in public since he was detained by Russian security agents on suspicion of espionage late last month. NPR's Charles Maines was at the courthouse today and joins us now. Hi, Charles. Hi there. So what was the scene like at the hearing today? Well, you know, this is a closed trial, uh, which is standard for espionage cases in Russia. But this portion, frankly, was, was more open than I expected. You know, journalists were allowed briefly into the courtroom where they could see Gershkovich. Uh, he was inside a glass enclosure, what, what Russians would call the aquarium, uh, dressed in a plaid blue shirt and jeans. You know, he looked fairly relaxed, chatting with his lawyers and occasionally smiling at onlookers, uh, despite masked security officers flanked to both sides. Now, this hearing was about trying to appeal the terms of Gershkovich's detention, in other words, perhaps placing him under house arrest or re release pending trial. And as you noted in the intro, it didn't work. You know, the court prolonged his detention despite what uh, Gershkovich's lawyers said was an offer of more than $600,000 bail by the Wall Street Journal's parent company, Dow Jones. Hmm. Well, the State Department here has officially designated Gershkovich as wrongfully detained, right? So were U.S. officials on hand there? Did they say anything about all of this? Yeah, they were. You know, U.S. Ambassador to Russia, Lynn Tracy, and consular officers were present for the open portions of the hearing, uh, including the judge's ruling. Uh, I should say I was in a separate room for media watching a video feed. Uh, but afterward, outside the courthouse, Ambassador Tracy said she found it troubling to see, in her words, an innocent journalist held in these circumstances. She also noted that she had finally been given access to Sigurskovich in prison, but only yesterday, after two weeks of trying to get consular access. I can report that he is in good health and remains strong despite his circumstances. You know, and Tracy repeated calls for Gershkovich's immediate release while also mentioning another American currently in jail on espionage charges in Russia. That's Paul Whelan. Mm -hmm. uh, Tracy said both men uh, deserve to be reunited with their families. Okay, so the ambassador says Gershkovich is in good health. You say he seemed to be in pretty good spirits at the courthouse. Do, do we know more about the conditions at the prison? Well, we know some details. Uh, he's fed kasha, Russian porridge, for breakfast every morning, which mm. his lawyers say he doesn't mind. Uh, his mom used to feed it to him when he was growing up. Mm. Uh, he's also been writing letters, lots of them, uh, responding to all the mail he's been getting from supporters. 
Uh, and he's been doing a lot of reading, including making his way through uh, Leo Tolstoy's classic War and Peace. Uh, that's according to one of his lawyers, uh, Tatiana Nushkina. He, he read a lot of books, and maybe he, he uh, told us that maybe he will write uh, some, some uh, good uh, novel at the yeah, end of the himself. story, about himself <laughs> at the end of the story. <laughs> You know, and I know that sounds a little lighthearted, but I think it just speaks to the sense of resilience that Gerskovich has. That said, I mean, the story is he remains in detention, will remain for the foreseeable future. Where do things go from here? Well, Russian officials have repeatedly said Gershkovich was caught, in their words, red-handed, uh, collecting information about Russia's military-industrial complex uh, without providing, I should say, any evidence thus far. Uh, meanwhile, Gershkovich and the Journal have been adamant these charges are bogus and they want to fight them. Uh, they argue that talking to people in Russia was Gershkovich's job as a reporter. Uh, the Journal issued a statement saying that it found today's decision disappointing, but but not unexpected. And Gershkovich's lawyers say he'll again appeal his detention, although that next hearing won't come until late May. That is NPR's Charles Maines in Moscow. Thank you, Charles. Thank you. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up in about five minutes, we revisit the story of the longest game in professional baseball history. It involved the Pawtucket Red Sox and happened more than 40 years ago today. That story is still ahead on WBUR. In the forecast tonight, cloudy skies, breezy down around the low 40s. Tomorrow could make it to the mid-50s as sunshine emerges. Should be a bright day. Another bright day on Thursday, mainly sunny skies moving to the mid-60s. This is WBUR. Celtics host the Hawks tonight in Game 2 of their first round playoff series. For all the Celtics and Bruins home playoff games, the city's closing off Canal Street to traffic near the Garden. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Waterstone, a new luxury, independent, and assisted living community with social and wellness programs and fine dining on Watertown Street in Lexington, waterstonelexington.com, and Grogan & Company, fine art and jewelry auctioneers, whose spring auction weekend is May 6th and 7th. Learn more at grogan.co.com. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, his grandfather marched alongside Martin Luther King Jr. He runs point for the Celtics and strives to walk in his ancestors' footsteps off the court. Meet NBA star Malcolm Brogdon. That's Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In Wilmington, Delaware, Fox News and Dominion Voting Systems have settled a high-stakes defamation lawsuit. The details are still coming in. The judge had delayed the case by one day to give both sides a chance to resolve the conflict out of court. Dominion had sued Fox and its hosts for $1.6 billion for spreading election lies at the voting machines company, tried to prevent Donald Trump from being re-elected in 2020. The settlement is for half that $1.6 billion. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is facing the task of selling his recently proposed debt ceiling plan to members of his own caucus. But as NPR's Windsor Johnson reports, Republicans and Democrats 
have been deadlocked for months. The big question is whether McCarthy will be able to get all of his members behind the plan. His proposal calls for a one-year debt ceiling increase combined with a series of spending cuts and policy changes. Democrats, including President Biden, have been pushing to lift the borrowing limit with no conditions and have so far refused to budge on the issue. McCarthy can only afford to lose four Republican votes if he's to pass the legislation along party lines in the House. However, However, the measure is all but certain to be dead on arrival in the Senate. If the two sides fail to reach an agreement, the nation could default on its debt for the first time ever. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. A Kansas City homeowner who shot a black teen who mistakenly rang his doorbell is now in custody one day after being charged with first-degree assault and armed criminal action. Some civil rights leaders are calling for federal hate crime charges against 84-year-old Andrew Lester. But the county DA there says first-degree assault is a higher-level crime with up to life in prison. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. The U.S. Air Force has opened an investigation into the government document leak by Airman First Class Jack Teixeira at Joint Base Cape Cod. It will include an investigation into the Air National Guard unit Teixeira worked for. While that investigation is underway, the Air Force has temporarily reassigned intelligence work done by that unit to other parts of the Air Force. WBR's Amy Sokolow has more. The 21-year-old Teixeira was charged in Boston Friday for sharing the highly classified documents in a chat room on the social media platform Discord. In a Senate subcommittee hearing today, Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall said the investigation will include any policy and protocol breaches at the Cape Cod base. He also said enforcement of need-to-know status will be critical going forward. Any airman or guardian or anyone in uniform could not appreciate the seriousness of this material and how damaging it would be to have it get out in the public domain. That, that's a fundamental problem of its own right. Teixeira will be in a Boston federal court tomorrow for a detention hearing. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amy Sokolow. Police in Maine say a highway shooting that left three people injured today is connected with the fatal shootings of four other people who were found 25 miles away. The victims killed were found in a home in the town of Bowdoin. Shortly after that, police say the gunfire erupted on a busy interstate 295 in Yarmouth. Three people were hurt in that incident, and one person was taken in custody. Police have not disclosed a motive or released any names of people involved. New data shows sports wagering is generating a lot of cash for the state of Massachusetts, and that's thanks especially to bets that are placed online. WBR's Fausto Menard has more on the latest figures from the state's gaming commission. The state's three casinos and six online wagering sites generated $47 million in taxable sports wagering revenue last month. $45 million of that stemmed from bets placed online and through mobile apps. In February, before online sports betting was allowed in Massachusetts, the state's three casinos generated $2 million in taxable sports wagering revenue. Bottom line, the state took in more than $9 million in taxes from sports wagering in March and nearly $30 million more from traditional casino gambling. Most of that money goes back to Massachusetts cities and towns in the form of local aid. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU School of Social Work. Top-ranked part-time MSW programs in Bedford, Fall River, Worcester, and Cape Cod. BU.edu slash SSW. 
54 degrees now in the Boston area should be overcast through the evening and overnight tonight on the windy side. Temperatures falling to the low 40s tonight. Tomorrow should rise to the mid-50s. Lots of sunshine tomorrow. Thursday, more sunshine. Highs in the mid-60s. This is WBUR. It's 436. Support for NPR comes from this station and from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. And from Progressive, Progressive Commercial Insurance protects small businesses from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Today, we're bringing you a story from ESPN's 30 for 30 podcasts and radio diaries. Baseball is sometimes called the timeless game. This year, Major League Baseball implemented a pitch clock. But unlike other sports, there still is no game clock. The teams keep playing until there's a winner. Theoretically, a game could go on forever. And four decades ago, one game came close. Today, April 18th, marks the anniversary of the longest baseball game in history. Red Wings play-by-play baseball. This began as a game of absolutely no consequence. Well, Bob Drew, along with Pete Perez here at McCoy Stadium in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. Pawtucket, Rhode Island is a city of about 70,000, working class, blue collar. My name is Dan Barry. I'm a longtime journalist with the New York Times, and I wrote a book about this game. Pawtucket was quite proud of its distinction as the AAA base for the Boston Red Sox. And they had this stadium called McCoy Stadium. It was kind of run down in those days and kind of beat up, but they ran a clean shop. They watched the drinking. They watched the swearing. Families took the kids there, and it was fun. Bill George, I was the official scorekeeper. It was an early season Saturday night. There wasn't much we were playing for. It was just baseball as usual. My name is Mike Tamburo. I was the general manager of the Pawtucket Red Sox. Now, this was minor league baseball, AAA, where every player is hoping to get noticed and get called up to the majors. And on the field that night were two future Hall of Famers. This is Cal Ripken. I played third base for the Rochester Red Wings. All of us were in the same boat. We were all young, and we all had the same fears, the same anxieties. Uh, We wanted to make it, and we wanted to make it bad. This is Wade Boggs. I was the starting third baseman for the Pawtucket Red Sox on that infamous night of 1981. Cool and windy night here in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. The wind blowing right in from center field. The first pitch was thrown a little after 8 o'clock. The wind made it hard to score, and by the end of nine innings, the two teams were tied 1-1. And it stayed that way for several more hours. Now, normally, an extra inning game would be halted by a curfew at 12.50 a.m. But that year, a paragraph about the curfew had been somehow left out of the umpire's manual by mistake. So on this night, the umpires ruled that the game should go on with no end in sight. By the 22nd inning, the two teams were still deadlocked, tied 2-2. 
It was close to 2.30 in the morning at that point. The few fans left in the stands were cold, tired, and hungry, and the concession stands started giving away free food and coffee. Everybody by that time was just punchy, silly. I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> anyway, here we go. Now we have somebody coming out of the Red Wing dugout, all covered up with a towel or a blanket or something to keep warm. Everybody's bundled up so tight it's hard to tell who the players are. That'll bring up... Make that towel Ripken. As we were getting colder, we found a uh, metal trash can and we started building a fire so that we could warm our hands. Our broken bats became firewood. We were breaking off ends of the wood bench to burn. You know, we threw that in there. We got invited to come down to Ben's box, the owner's box, and that's when the Chevis Regal Scotch came out. <laughs> and we were sitting there, I think it was me, Debbie Boggs. We were all just huddled under all these blankets, just taking swigs out of the bottle. Tell you what, I'd like to thank all of you people who have stayed with us tonight. I hope you're having a big party back there in Rochester, and we're going to try to win it for you. There were people calling the ballpark because their husband or son or whoever was not coming home. Dennis Craig, the um, plate umpire, had brought his nephew to the ball game at one o'clock. His mother is so concerned. This was before the cell phones, before the internets. She called the city, who called the county, who called the state. They were looking over every bridge, looking for taillights. Finally, they traced them back to the ballpark. The officer calls the mother and says, Ma'am, we have found your son. He is safe. They're in the 27th inning. It's 2.30, quarter or 3, 3 o'clock, 3.10, Not for one second did I ever think, okay, I'm going to go home and sleep now. There was no way. I was there till the bitter end. <laughs> And Bob, for the fans that are still awake back in Rochester, I would like for you to listen to the post-game show right after the conclusion of this ball game, if it ever does end. As the innings mounted, and we got to 25 innings, 27 innings, 30 innings, we figured we're, we've got to be close to a record here. Baseball history puts a lot of emphasis on records. Most hits in a game, uh, most home runs hit in a season, most this, most that, all kinds of crazy records. I'm thinking, wow, we have a chance here tonight in little old Pawtucket, Rhode Island, to get in the history books. It became what you were playing for at some point, you know? Because something good had to come out of this crazy night, or else we all froze our rear ends off for nothing. Here it is, 4 o'clock in the morning, the 32nd inning. It's even absurd to say that in baseball, to say the 32nd inning. Rochester gets a guy on second base. Uh, the batter hits a single to right field. Pitch! 
There's a shot that might get through there. It does out in the right field for a base hit. John Hale is rounding third. Hale was trying to score. It would have been the ball game, you know, put Rochester ahead. The manager for the Rochester Red Wings is waving his arms like a windmill. Get your home. Get home. The right fielder for the Pawtucket Red Sox is Sam Bowen. Now, Bowen has to try and throw this guy out, and the entire game rides on this play. So let's pause here. <laughs> Imagine being Sam Bowen. You've been in right field for seven-plus hours, on and off. I asked Bowen, did you ever think about not giving it your best throw, maybe throwing it over the backstop? And Bowen really <laughs> got angry with me. He said, this is what I do. I am not going to do anything less than my best. Even though this guy is never going to make it back to the major leagues, and he knows it, he is not going to let this guy score. Sammy takes it on two hops and makes a throw, a, a tremendous throw, nails the runner at the plate. Here comes the lead run around the score, and they're going to get in. And he was thrown out from the right fielder to the catcher, and that ends the inning. This is unbelievable. You make that play in the top of the ninth, it's a great play. You make that play in the top of the 32nd, it's a, it's a historic play. To me, it spoke to the true grit of a professional baseball player that in the top of the 32nd inning, at 4 o'clock in the morning, that he would throw out a guy at home plate in those circumstances. So at the end of 32, it's still all tied up at 2. At four in the morning, mentally, I, I kind of lost it. I was saying baseball could kiss my tonight because this is not the way baseball is supposed to be played. When is this going to end? So all through the night, ever since the 15th inning, uh, Mike Tamburo of the Pawtucket Red Sox has been calling Columbus, Ohio. He's been calling the home of a guy named Harold Cooper, who is the president of the International League and who has authority to call the game. We called it 2 o'clock, and he didn't pick up. And we called it 3 o'clock, and he didn't pick up. And we called it 3.30, and he didn't pick up. It wasn't until about quarter of 4 in the morning that he finally answered the phone. He, he was in a deep sleep, or he was out in some gin mill someplace uh, living it up. I said, Harold, it's quarter of 4 in the morning. We're still playing ball. He said, you're still playing baseball? There's absolutely a curfew. I got Jack Leeds, the third base umpire, brought him into the office. Now the third base umpire is out to the Pawtucket dugout, and so we don't know what the heck's going on. Cooper basically says, end it now. End the game. <laughs> and at 4.07 in the morning on Easter Sunday, the umpires have finally suspended this ball game, and it will have to be played off at a later date. We decided, let's conclude this game when Rochester would make their next appearance at McCoy Stadium and give these players at least some time off to get some rest. Pete, you got a final word? So, Bo, i just like to say that both teams they played hard the whole 32 innings, and win or lose, 
the Rochester Red Wings and the Pawtucket Red Sox are to be commended for a job well done tonight. Once again, the final score from Pawtucket, Rhode Island, the Rochester Red Wings 2, the Pawtucket Red Sox 2 in a suspended game. For Pete Therese and Howie Burns, our engineer back at WPXN, this has been Bob Drew. So long, everybody. Good morning, WPXN. I looked over right field fence. I saw light in the sky. It was actually the beginning of dawn. It was a beautiful Easter Sunday morning. After eight hours and 32 innings, the game still wasn't over. The teams waited two months before finishing. And when they finally resumed play, instead of 19 fans in the stands, there were nearly 6,000 with reporters from all around the world to watch the end of the longest game in history. To hear that chapter and more, you can find the full story, which was just nominated for a Webby Award on ESPN's 30 for 30 podcast. This story was produced by Nellie Gillis and the team at Radio Diaries. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. After an ugly marathon Monday loss to the Angels, the Red Sox will try to set things right tonight as they launch a series with the Minnesota Twins. It'll be Chris Sale versus Sonny Gray. First pitch is at 7:10 tonight. Celtics continue their push for an NBA title tonight. They host the Atlanta Hawks in Game 2 of the first-round playoff series. Boston leads the series one game to zero. Game time is 7 p.m. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Mission Realty Advisors team at Compass. Advising buyers and sellers in today's changing real estate market. More at mraboston.com slash WBUR. If you're used to watching TV when and how you want, you can now do the same with listening to the radio. You can pause and rewind live radio with the new WBUR app. Download it at the App Store today. Some sunshine and clouds taking us into the evening hours. Then clouds settle in for the night tonight, down around 42 degrees. For tomorrow, lots of sunshine. Temperatures in the mid-60s, 55 degrees now in Boston at 449. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by MIT's McDermott Award in the Arts, honoring Pamela Z. See her lecture at MIT April 20th. More at arts.mit.edu slash McDermott. And Cambridge Naturals, a local source for health and wellness since 1974. In Cambridge, Brighton, and at cambridgenaturals.com. People seeking asylum in the U.S. face yet another obstacle. The way to get a hearing is through an app. And like so many apps, it never quite works as intended. That's one user saying something always goes wrong. With a rise in asylum cases and a glitchy app, how are people navigating? Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WB1. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Scott Detrow. At least half the counties in America do not have a single black physician. And that's a big deal because research shows black Americans live longer in counties where more doctors look like them. In a few minutes, we will look at some of the barriers keeping many determined students of color out of medical school. 
Meanwhile, in Florida this week, Governor Ron DeSantis ratcheted up his attacks on the Walt Disney Company. DeSantis is a likely Republican presidential contender, and he is angry at a legal maneuver that Disney pulled off just before a new board took control of its special district. A last-minute agreement with the outgoing board preserved Disney's development rights and control over its theme parks. And DeSantis says the state will now take action to nullify that agreement, and he says he is considering what to do with some of the district land next to Disney World, including possibly building a prison. Okay, wow. NPR's Greg Allen has been following all of this and joins us now from Miami. Hi, Greg. Hi, Elsa. Okay, so is DeSantis serious about building a prison next to Disney World? Well, probably not. You know, there's quite a bit of trolling going on here. (laughs) But it's clear that this is all very personal for the governor. And here's what he had to say earlier this week. What should we do with this land? And so, you know, it's like, okay, kids, I mean, people have said, you know, maybe, maybe have another, uh, maybe create a state park, maybe try to do more amusement uh, parks. Uh, Someone even said, like, maybe you need another state prison. Who knows? I mean, I just think that the the possibilities are, 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 are endless. Wow. It sounds like he's just teasing them. Remind us what this is all about. Like, why is Governor DeSantis so angry with Disney, which is, by the way, one of the largest employers in the state, right? Right. Exactly. Well, up to now, Disney's always been treated with kid gloves by elected officials because of its economic and political clout. But, and here's a fun fact, DeSantis was actually married at Disney World. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> but last year, he became angry after Disney's CEO said, that he'd work to undo a parental rights and education bill in Florida, the one that critics call Don't Say Gay. Because of that, DeSantis pushed the Republican-controlled legislature to dissolve a special district created 55 years ago for Disney, which gave it self-governing authority. Uh, DeSantis was involved in renaming the district. He appointed a new board. But in one of the board's last acts, it signed an agreement with Disney World containing restrictive covenants that severely limit the new board's ability to do anything that affects the theme parks or how the company operates. Well, can DeSantis and the Florida legislature undo that agreement? Well, that remains to be seen. Disney says its agreement complies with Florida's law. Uh, Tomorrow, DeSantis' new hand-picked district board is meeting and plans to pass a resolution revoking that development agreement. But many are skeptical that that resolution will carry any weight. Uh, Because of that, DeSantis says the legislature soon will take up a bill nullifying the agreement. He also says the state will lift Disney's exemption from state inspections of its rides and attractions, including its monorail. And what has Disney said about all this so far? Well, not much recently other than a statement about the ride inspection saying the company has been an industry leader on safety. At a shareholder meeting earlier this month, Disney CEO Bob Iger called DeSantis' retaliation anti-business and anti-Florida. And it does seem likely that the dispute is headed for court and may actually end up before the U.S. Supreme Court eventually. Wow. Okay. well, as we mentioned, DeSantis may enter the contest for the Republican presidential nomination. Do you think, Greg, that a protracted battle with Disney will help him with that? Well, it's very puzzling. It's hard to see how it does. DeSantis is popular with Republicans in Florida who like his confrontational approach, but taking on things like drag shows and transgender teens is not the same thing as attacking a powerful and popular entertainment giant like Mm -hmm. Disney. Some of DeSantis' possible opponents in the race for a presidential nomination are taking note on his social media site. Former President Trump said DeSantis is, quote, 
being absolutely destroyed by Disney. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, who also may enter the race, says based on DeSantis' actions against Disney, (laughs) he doesn't think the governor's a conservative. But it all is personal with him, and up to now, he's mostly gotten wins in his battles here. It doesn't seem like he's likely to back down against Disney. That is NPR's Greg Allen. Thank you, Greg. For decades. For decades, leading medical organizations have been trying to diversify the ranks of physicians, and that matters because research has shown that people of color have better health outcomes when their doctors look like them. But a new study is highlighting factors that can keep students of color from even making it to med school. NPR's Maria Godoy reports. Sabina Spigner says she's always known she wanted to be a doctor. But as a pre-med student at an Ivy League college, she found herself struggling to balance a heavy class load while also working as much as 20 hours a week. I was always working because I didn't have money and I was a work-study student. Her grades suffered as a result. In her junior year, she turned to her pre-med advisor for help. And she was like, well, you're just not going to get into med school with that GPA. And so I think you should consider something else. And she didn't really present me with many resources or or options other than just giving up. Last month, Spigner, who is Black and Southeast Asian American, wrote about her experiences on Twitter. Unfortunately, a lot of people shared similar stories. You know, this is something that's happening across the country, and it's very, very common, especially for students of color, to experience discouragement. A new study in the journal JAMA Health Forum backs up that assessment. It finds that students of color are much more likely to face financial and discriminatory barriers to med school than their white peers. The study looked at responses from more than 81,000 students who took the medical college admission test. Lead author Dr. Jessica Fies of UCLA notes the standardized exam is grueling. People study for it for months, if not years. You paid for the test. You took all that time to study. You are definitely quite committed to applying. Even so, Fies and her colleagues found that Black and Hispanic test takers were significantly less likely to go on to apply and enroll in med school than white test takers. Not only that, but Black, Hispanic, and Native American students were more likely to say they had money problems, like difficulty affording test prep materials, and already having large student loans. And even further, they're more likely to face discouragement from advisors when applying to medical school compared to their white counterparts. That study co-author Dr. Utiba Essien. He's an assistant professor of medicine at UCLA. He says the findings are important because lots of research has shown people of color have much better health outcomes when their doctors are of a similar racial or ethnic background. Having a doctor who looks like you if you're from a minoritized group makes you more likely to accept flu vaccination, to have a colonoscopy, to consider having a more invasive heart procedure. There's even new research that finds Black people live longer in areas with more Black doctors. We're not just advocating diversity out of the goodness of our hearts, but it really literally is saving lives. Other researchers say the study sheds much needed light on the unconscious biases that can block the path to med school for students of color. Here's Dr. Jaya Isola with Penn Medicine's Center for Health Equity Advancement. From who advises you to, to submit an application to who then eventually helps select your application to those who interview you, there's bias all along those processes. As for Sabina Spigner, despite being discouraged by her pre-med advisor, she didn't give up. She got two master's degrees in science and public health before heading to the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. She'll graduate as Dr. Spigner next month. Maria Godoy, NPR News. 
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Peacock with the new original series, Mrs. Davis, about the world's most powerful artificial intelligence and the nun devoted to destroying her. From Tara Hernandez and Damon Lindelof, streams April 20th on Peacock. From Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct virtual interviews all in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. And from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at BetterHelp.com public. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIT Museum with captivating exhibitions and dynamic programming that turn MIT inside out. Curious what the buzz is about? Plan your visit today. I'm executive editor for News, Dan Mozzie, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Congress is ramping up the investigation into reports of migrant child labor in the U.S. Some kids are being placed in very exploitive conditions, and we believe that to be, of course, not just heartbreaking, but unacceptable. There are also concerns that officials lost track of thousands of migrant children. Our story is coming up on this Tuesday, April 18th. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, lawyers for Dominion Voting Systems and Fox reached a $788 million settlement this afternoon, just before a trial was to have begun. And 10 years ago today, the manhunt was on for two suspects in the Boston Marathon bombings. Police released photos of the men but didn't know who they were. The uncertainty sparked a social media effort to find the perpetrators that went badly awry. It just descended into the darkest, you know, places of horrible racist comments and attacks against the family. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Fox News has settled with Dominion Voting Systems just as a trial was set to begin today. As NPR's Mary Ang reports, the case centered on how the top-rated network spread false claims about the 2020 presidential election. What could have been the biggest media trial in decades is off. Attorneys from both parties reached an out-of-court deal minutes before a Dominion attorney was set to give his opening argument. Dominion, which makes voting machines, had sued Fox for defamation, saying the network irreparably damaged its business after Fox repeatedly aired baseless claims about the company after the 2020 election. Ahead of the trial, the judge ruled that claims, such as Dominion machines flipping votes from then-President Donald Trump to Joe Biden, were undoubtedly false. The final figure, $787,500,000, was less than what Dominion had previously asked for in damages, $1.6 billion. Dominion had also demanded an apology from Fox equal to the weight of the false claims it promoted for weeks in 2020. It's unclear what that will look like. Mary Yang, NPR News. Dominion's lawyers, meanwhile, wasted little time in emerging from the courthouse to declare victory in the case. Dominion attorney Justin Nelson saying lies have consequences, noting the case was not about red or blue states, but about the truth. Over two years ago, a torrent of lies 
swept Dominion and election officials across America into an alternative universe of conspiracy theories causing grievous harm to Dominion and the country. Nelson did not provide any details about whether the deal will include an apology from Fox News CEO Rupert Murdoch or high-profile hosts like Tucker Carlson or Sean Hannity, all of whom were slated to testify at a trial. Fox, in a statement, acknowledged the court's ruling, finding certain claims about Dominion to be false. The federal government's authorizing the latest COVID-19 vaccines for use as another booster, but NPR's Rob Stein says not everyone is cleared to get them. The FDA has decided to let anyone age 65 and older who got one of the bivalent Omicron boosters at least four months ago to get another one. Same goes for anyone with a weakened immune system who got one of the shots at least two months ago. Until now, the newest formulations of the vaccines could only be used for one booster. But concerns about fading immunity prompted the agency to okay another for those at highest risk. It's unclear how many people want another booster, but the decision is welcomed by those who are still worried about COVID and also frustrating others younger than 65 who would also like to bolster their immunity. Rob Stein, NPR News. On Wall Street, the Dow was down 10 points. The S&P rose three points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The 102nd Intelligence Wing of the Massachusetts Air National Guard on Cape Cod has been ordered to temporarily stop conducting its intelligence work. The directive comes from the Secretary of the Air Force. It follows last week's arrest of a guardsman from the 102nd who was accused of leaking classified documents. The Air Force wants to take the next 30 days to investigate the unit's overall compliance with policy, procedures, and standards. The guardsman, Jack Teixeira, is due back in court tomorrow for hearing on whether he'll be released on bail. Boston-area commuters are giving the MBTA poor marks. A new poll from the Boston Business Journal and Seven Letter finds nearly three-quarters of respondents say the T has become less reliable in the last six months. Those surveyed graded the system C on average for the quality of commuter rail and bus service and D for subway service. We heard from the champions of the 127th Boston Marathon at a news conference today and one day after the race. There's still a lot of interest on a runner who didn't win or even make it to the podium. WBR's Alex Ashlock reports. Everyone wants to know what happened to Elliot Kipchoge yesterday. The marathon world record holder from Kenya was the favorite in the men's race, but he finished sixth. Today, Kipchoge said he did have a problem with his left leg during the race, but did not use that as an excuse, and he says he never considered dropping out. They say it's important to win, but it's great to participate and finish. Kipchoge said he would absolutely consider running another Boston Marathon, but he wouldn't say what his next race will be. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Alex Ashlock. Dozens of sea turtles are back in the ocean after successful rehabilitation at the New England Aquarium. The turtles were treated there for pneumonia and dehydration after they were cold-stunned in Cape Cod Bay during the fall and winter. Aquarium officials released the turtles in the warmer waters of North Carolina yesterday. They say the number of cold-stunned turtle strandings is increasing year after year. 55 degrees now in the Boston area. Some sunshine out there. Clouds dominating this evening. Overnight tonight should be down around 42 degrees. Then for tomorrow, a beautiful day. Sunny skies, windy, about as mild as today has been in the mid-50s. Thursday should feature sunshine and higher temperatures rising to the mid-60s. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 5.07. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by iDrive, providing cloud backup, full system backup, and on-site iDrive appliance to protect PCs, Macs, and servers from data loss due to crashes and ransomware at iDrive.com. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Congress is ramping up its probe into reports regarding hundreds of cases of migrant child labor in the U.S. Today, a House panel grilled a top government official responsible for placing these children in safe homes. Here's Republican Glenn Grothman, who chairs a House Oversight Subcommittee. He's asking that official about reports that the program lost track of 85,000 migrant children. We uh, do not track or monitor. The answer is no. There are 85,000 kids who came across the border. We don't know. Is that right? Apparently it is. But Democrats argue this program is just one piece in a much larger crisis highlighted in recent reports by The New York Times. Joining us now from the Capitol is NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales. Hey, Claudia. Hi, Elsa. So what did we learn from today's hearing? Well, we heard from this top official testifying today that they need Congress's help. This official is the director of the so-called Office of Refugee Resettlement Program. They're charged with placing these unaccompanied migrant children in homes Mm -hmm. after a child arrives at the border and is transferred out of the custody of the Department of Homeland Security. This director, Robin Dunn Marcos, defended her program's actions, saying they don't have enough resources to track these 85,000 children, and they need Congress's help to expand services for these children after they're placed in these homes. I think continued support in expanding post-release services and legal services are critical to providing um, care for these children. And we should note this 85,000 figure refers to migrant children that the New York Times reported went through the program in the first two years of the Biden administration. We also heard Robin Dunmarcos say that they are looking into an audit to investigate this further and coordinating more with the Department of Labor. But Democrats argue that this program, which is under the Health and Human Services Department, is largely not equipped to be in touch with these children after placement. And that's one area where Congress can help. Well, how is the Biden administration responding to these reports? Today, the White House said that child labor is unacceptable and that the administration is taking actions to crack down on related violations and increase scrutiny of companies that do business with employers who violate child labor laws. But they're also calling on Congress to make these fixes that are possible here. The oversight panel's top Democrat, Robert Garcia, touched on this. We also need to have a serious conversation about how we make sure that we're fully enforcing our labor laws and holding corporations accountable when they knowingly and illegally profit from child labor. So I personally support legislation to crack down on these unethical employers. So we also heard frustration from him and other Democrats with Republicans that employers tied to these practices of child labor were not part of today's hearing. And they also defended the role of the Biden administration here, saying it's been a difficult transition for ha- from how migrant children were treated previously under the Trump administration with images of children being held in caged areas. Exactly. Well, what are the next steps at this point to address all of this? Republicans say that a crackdown 
down on border security is the answer here. Several noted that the House Judiciary Committee will soon begin work on a GOP border security bill, but we don't expect that to go far with the Democratic-controlled Senate and White House. House Democrats are ask, asking for bipartisan help, but there's not much hope there. Mm-hmm. But this has become part of a larger national conversation about child labor laws. Right. But for now, Senate Democrats are considering legislation to stop these efforts on child labor, but with divided government, it will be a difficult task for Congress to get on the same page. Indeed. That is NPR's Claudia Grisales. Thank you, Claudia. Thank you much. In Sudan, casualties continue to rise in the fight between two rival military factions. Urban warfare in the country's capital, Khartoum, has been so intense that people are afraid to leave their homes. The violence is just the latest challenge to a country already on the brink, where 16 million people, roughly a third of the population, are already in need of humanitarian aid, according to the United Nations. On the line with us from Khartoum is Arshad Malik. He's country director in Sudan for Save the Children. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you very much. You know, as we speak, a a 24-hour ceasefire was supposed to have gone into effect already. Are you seeing or hearing any signs that that's happening? Has the violence around you uh, stopped or, or decreased? Since yesterday till this morning, it was relatively quiet. And, and we, we were really uh, happy about the news of the ceasefire. To be very honest with you, I don't think anyone has actually tried to see whether it's effective. We did hear gunshots mm-hmm. and we hear them still. But uh, I doubt anyone has effectively tried it considering that it's very dark now, and I I don't think so anyone will go out at this time. I'm wondering what you have seen with your own eyes the past few days. Have you been able to look around, go outside? Have you seen any of this destruction firsthand? No, no. Like, I think, as I said, like, most of the people are trying to stay indoor. Uh, We are expecting quite a bit of destruction. Yeah. I think we are mentally ready that there is a lot of destruction. There is a lot of um, unwanted scenes we will see. Mm Mm-hmm. But I think that's what we, but that's what we we are here for to provide support yeah. in such circumstances. And there's talk of using this this humanitarian window if the ceasefire holds tomorrow. Uh, what what will your group be trying to do if, in fact, it is safe to to go out? If the humanitarian window materializes, and we were already in discussion with Ministry of Health uh, to understand what are the needs, and we do understand there is a critical shortage of medical supplies, including um, blood bags and other surgical items, but also other much needed essential medical items. Mm-hmm. And then there are hospitals which are not functional in Khartoum, particularly because three rupees because of three reasons. One, basically security issue and, and some buildings being damaged, but also lack of medical supplies and also doctors and medical staff are not able to reach because of the access issues. Yeah. So our our, our discussion with the Ministry of Health was focused on how do we make sure that we provide essential services to ensure that we are, one, able to in, provide support to injured and sick people, but also more of like psychosocial support to the rest of like people who need it. The civilians that you're able to be in touch with, what are they doing to stay safe amid this widespread fighting? The only thing we can do, including all the people we spoke with, and I know I've been in touch with my staff and other friends and, and people otherwise, everyone is just staying where they are, trying to take shelter. Um, we have reports from our staff where uh, bullets have actually hit their windows. Uh, there are other people who have told that their, their rooftops have been damaged or other parts of the buildings have been damaged because of projectiles or mortars. 
So people are trying to take shelter wherever they can. There is nothing else. There's nothing much we can do. There are reports of um, armed men basically attacking various compounds, especially targeting international community, including diplomatic missions in Khartoum. Are you concerned that humanitarian workers could be targeted right now? So four humanitarian workers died in uh, Darfur, not Darfur, three World Food Program staff and one Relief International staff died um, due to this conflict. So yes, we are concerned about the safety and security of humanitarian workers. In your gut feeling, is this a short-term conflict or is this something you're worried could, could drag on for a very long time? We hope and pray it's, it, it ends soon. Yeah. If you ask, asked us like, like late Friday, early Saturday, no one expected this. So we expect that this is just uh, short term. No one would uh, like to see Sudan in this season. Sudanese people do not deserve this. So mm-hmm. I hope it ends soon. Yeah. Yeah. That's Arshad Malik, the country director in Sudan for Save the Children. Thank you so much for, for speaking with us and stay safe. Thank you. It is tax day, but of course, we don't just pay taxes once a year, right? There's sales tax. There's also the sandwich tax. That's a tax people in some states like California, Massachusetts, and New York pay for prepared foods. And one company found a tax loophole for a New York delicacy. NPR's Stacey Vanek-Smith reports. Here in New York, a lot of things are legally considered sandwiches. And if you buy them, you have to pay a sandwich tax. A wrap? Technically a sandwich. A hot dog? That's a sandwich. A burrito? Somehow also a sandwich. A bagel? If you slice it and throw some cream cheese on it, it's a sandwich. Sandwich tax, 8.875%. Ryan Klepper is the director of restaurant operations for H&H Bagels. I met him at an H&H inside of New York's bustling Penn Station. He says that 8.875% adds up. I believe on a bagel with cream cheese is 410 And I'm not a mathematician, but I believe the tax is 36 cents. Grand total, $4.46. All because of a Depression-era measure meant to keep taxes off of groceries, but charge extra for restaurant food. Now, if you order just a bagel at H&H, not sliced, no cream cheese, you do not pay the sandwich tax. And this got H&H thinking, is there a way to give people a bagel with cream cheese that does not involve that bagel getting sliced open? We filled the bagel with cream cheese. It could be not subject to the tax. Like injected it in. Injected it in. It's a lot similar to how they would fill a Boston cream or a jelly donut. Behold the tax-free bagel. Brought to you by H&H Bagels and Philadelphia Cream Cheese. No slicing, no schmearing. No sandwich tax. Total cost, $1.90. Did you get a tax-free bagel? I got a tax-free bagel. What made you, what inspired you to get it? I, I like the rebellion. Okay, I, I, like, I like the rebellion. Jonathan Gould had just gotten off the train from New Jersey. Would you mind giving it a try and tell me what you think? Sure. It's good. I mean, it's good for what the purpose of it is. So what out of 10 would you say? Oh, I don't like to rate things. This doesn't have the flavor. It's just like, it's just like doughy. I don't know, you know, mm, three-ish. Oh, okay. Yeah, three-ish. I think any serious New Yorker who knows bagels, this is on the lower end of the bagel scale. But on a rebellion scale, 10 out of 10. Happy tax day. Stacey Bennick-Smith, NPR News. 
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, Fox News and Dominion Systems reach an agreement just before their trial is to begin. At the U.S. Supreme Court today, justices heard arguments on a case on how far employers must go to accommodate the religious views of their workers. Employees should not be forced to choose between their faith and their job. That the case and its potential implications coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered. Some volatile trading today, but not a lot of movement on Wall Street by the close. The Dow lost a small fraction of a percent. S&P was up about a tenth of a percent. The Nasdaq was down also a fraction of a percent. Details coming up on Marketplace at 630. It's now 19 past five. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes. CambridgeCulinary.com. Check out Violation, a new podcast from WBUR in partnership with The Marshall Project. Violation explores America's opaque parole system through a decades-old murder case. You can hear Violation wherever you get your podcasts. In the forecast, bright skies out there right now should turn cloudy overnight tonight, breezy down in the low 40s. Tomorrow could make it to the mid-50s as sunshine emerges again. Should be a bright day. And another on Thursday, mainly sunny skies moving to the mid-60s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash banking for business. And from Indeed, a hiring platform committed to helping businesses of all sizes. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct interviews in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. And I'm Elsa Chang. Two separate recent shootings of people who wound up at the wrong address have reignited concerns about the expanded self-defense laws known as Stand Your Ground. First, there was Ralph Yarl, the 16-year-old in Kansas City, who was shot and wounded Thursday after he rang the wrong doorbell of the wrong house to pick up his younger siblings. Then on Saturday night, 20-year-old Kaylin Gillis was killed in upstate New York when a homeowner opened fire on a car of friends who had turned into the wrong driveway. NPR's Becky Sullivan is here with us now to talk about Stand Your Ground laws. Hi, Becky. Hey, Elsa. Okay, so tell us more about what Mm -hmm. Stand Your Ground specifically is. Yeah, you know, so it's a change to the traditional idea of self-defense law. So normally, traditionally, self-defense says um, it's not a crime to use deadly force when you had no other option. Like there was an imminent danger of threat to you or somebody else, and there was no way to retreat or de-escalate the situation. Um, There has long been a traditional exception to that called the Castle Doctrine, which says Mm -hmm. that you don't have to retreat if you're in your own home. But starting in the mid-2000s, some Republican-led gun-friendly legislatures began to expand that idea of no duty to retreat to anywhere in public. So gun rights advocates, you know, basically they argued that if you're in imminent danger, if you're in the middle of a physical altercation, 
um, that it's unreasonable or even dangerous to force somebody to pause and sort through all the legal questions in their head before they engage in self-defense. So what Stand Your Ground does is basically as long as you're lawfully present wherever you are, you no longer have a duty to retreat. Um, so long as you're in danger of physical harm or you feel like you are, if even if you could safely walk away in those states, you still have the right to stand your ground. Okay. And how widespread are these kinds of stand your ground laws right now? So yeah, at least 28 states have stand your ground type statutes now, mostly red states, if you swing states. Um, and enough time has passed since they uh, were passed that we now have a lot more research about what happens in states that have those laws. And, you know, long story short, firearm homicide excuse me, firearm homicide rates go up. Um, that's what a study in the medical journal JAMA Network Open found last year, um, you know, essentially that nationwide that these these policies have led to a, quote, abrupt and sustained increase in national monthly homicide and firearm rates, equivalent to essentially 60 to 70 extra homicides every month nationwide. Mm. Legal experts told me that these laws have just caused a lot of confusion with prosecutors, with police, definitely with the public. Um, here's Peter Joy, who's a law professor at Washington University in St. Louis. I think it's just has clouded up everything and has led to the misconception that if somebody rings your doorbell, maybe juggles your the handle to your door, that you are permitted to go ahead and harm them physically. Okay, so Becky, do you think Stand Your Ground will come up in either of the cases we're talking about today? You know, it's hard to know for sure right now. It might not, actually, you know, especially in New York. There's no Stand Your Ground provision in New York. So, you know, their individuals do have a duty to retreat before they can use deadly force. Um, the shooter there, 65-year-old Kevin Monahan, he's been charged with murder. Authorities have said that there was no reason for him to feel threatened. Um, now, in Missouri, where Ralph, Ralph Yarl was shot, that state does mm-hmm. have a Stand Your Ground clause. Um, the shooter there told police that he saw Yarl pulling on the door handle, said he believed the teenager was trying to break into his house. Um, He said he was scared to death. He really believed he was protecting himself. But it's important to remember that stand your ground is still part of self-defense. You have to reasonably believe you're defending yourself from physical harm, whether that's a reasonable belief. uh, It's going to be for a jury to decide. That is NPR's Becky Sullivan. Thank you, Becky. You're welcome. If you say you don't like sports because it's all about the X's and O's and wins and losses, then let me introduce you to Liz Clark. She brings thoughtfulness and humanity to reporting on sports, and she has seen a lot of it, from nine Olympics to NASCAR to the three different names of the Washington football team over her tenure. After 37 years reporting, 25 of them at the Washington Post, she is hanging up her keyboard and notebook and pen. Liz Clark, welcome back. Thank you so much. I'm so humbled by your words. I I think I could weep. Thank you. I mean, I I want to start with the flavor of writing that you bring, though. Who taught you about writing just past the wins and losses? Oh, actually, my first sports editor, Gary Schwab, who was at the Charlotte Observer. That's when I switched from news to sports. It was Gary who really helped me understand that the best reporting comes when you allow yourself to observe and feel and truly do your best to understand the setting and the context and the individual you're writing about. And it's okay to make observations that are not strictly facts, something you can look up. That sounds so basic, but it was revelatory to me. Yeah, in the end, it's just stories about people, no matter what beat you're covering, you know? Though, I do want to ask how, on that note, how do you feel about the future of sports journalism? Because, I mean, from my perspective, I feel like so many of the great literary outlets 
have shrunk or folded. And there's just such an obsession with analytics and stats. And sometimes I feel like I'm reading a stats textbook when I'm trying to read about the baseball game. Do you feel like there's still space for storytelling right now? I will always believe that great writing, great storytelling finds its audience. I mean, to me, the most important thing is that sports writers continue asking why. You know, there's quite often a profound cost of being a world champion gymnast at 16 or figure skater or for all this passion about college sports. Does anything like amateurism still exist today? You know, to me, it's on the reporter to ask the questions that prompt the reader to think and go, oh, wow, I didn't know that. You wrote a lot about NASCAR. What drew you to that sport? That was circumstance, to be honest. In my time at the Charlotte Observer, pretty much everyone at the Charlotte Observer needed to help covering NASCAR at least twice a year because it was huge in that part of the country. I became absolutely fascinated. And this was in the early 90s when the sport was booming. And to me, I was an American history major with kind of a special interest in the South. And I quickly was able to connect the dots between this very hard scrabble kind of sport of American ingenuity. The whole legends of NASCAR in that time were folk heroes of this region, whether they used to run moonshine, and that was Junior Johnson, who Mm -hmm. was very much alive when I started covering it, um, or Richard Petty, who was a second generation stock car driver, and, you know, the late Dale Earnhardt, who was just one of the greatest athletes I have ever had the privilege of covering. It was a fascinating slice and swath of Americana for me. Last question, what's what's one of your favorite memories of, of being in the press box and seeing a moment and just realizing this is going to be a sports moment we're thinking about and talking oh. about decades later? Well, you're right in that it's hard to pick, but there's one that endures. The 2010 World Cup, which yeah. was hosted by South Africa, and I had never been to Africa. I certainly studied the history of apartheid, and to be in South Africa 20 years after Nelson Mandela was released from prison, to see, to feel what the power of reconciliation and leadership was. And at the final, you know, Nelson Mandela um, came out, it was very near the end of his life. And so to be in that press box and see Nelson Mandela in Johannesburg, that was just a life's privilege. Yeah, yeah, well, Liz Clark, thank you so much for talking to us. Oh, thank you, Scott. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes on WBUR's All Things Considered, the manhunt for the Boston Marathon bombers 10 years ago today and the crowdsourcing effort that went horribly wrong. Checking sports playoff fever in Boston. The Celtics host the Hawks tonight in Game 2 of their first-round playoff series for all Celtics and Bruins home playoff games. The city is closing off Canal Street to traffic near the garden so restaurants can offer outdoor dining. Red Sox start up a three-game series with the Minnesota Twins tonight at Fenway Park. Chris Sale will take the mound for Boston. Twins will go with Sonny Gray, 7-10 start time. In the forecast, nice and sunny out there right now, but should have more clouds moving in overnight tonight. Down around 42 degrees for low. Tomorrow, sunny skies, windy, highs again in the mid-50s. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, his grandfather marched alongside Martin Luther King Jr. He runs point for the Celtics and strives to walk in his ancestors' footsteps off the court. Meet NBA star Malcolm Brockton. That's Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. On Capitol Hill, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell says Republicans are prepared to block Democrats from temporarily filling Senator Dianne Feinstein's seat on the powerful Judiciary Committee. Here's NPR's Deidre Walsh with the latest. The top Senate Republican argued most of President Biden's judicial nominees have bipartisan support. He says replacing Feinstein on the judiciary panel would allow Democrats to approve nominees he labeled unqualified. So let's be clear, Senate Republicans will not take part in sidelining a temporary absent colleague off a committee just so Democrats can force through their very worst nominees. Feinstein hasn't voted since February. She's recovering from a diagnosis of shingles. Any effort to change committee seats requires 60 votes, and Democrats have a 51-49 majority. A small number of House Democrats have called for Feinstein to resign. Senate Democrats have backed her request for more time to recuperate. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, the Capitol. Facing roadblocks in Congress for his latest budget proposal, President Biden signed an executive order today to advance free preschool while expanding affordable care for older Americans and those with disabilities. How do we treat the people we care so much about? Who needs the most help? Our children, the people we love, people with disabilities, including veterans. And how do we value those caring for them? Child care workers, nurses, home care workers, family caregivers. The White House is betting child and elder care programs, which are popular with the public but not Republicans, will help boost Biden's lagging approval ratings as he prepares to announce another run for the White House. Stocks finished mixed on Wall Street today. The Dow down about 10 points. Tech-heavy Nasdaq dropped four. The S&P gained three. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The MBTA is conducting inspections of two dozen of its new model Green Line trolleys. The move comes after one of the trains unexpectedly broke down yesterday afternoon near Boylston Station. The breakdown happened during an extremely busy afternoon with a Boston Marathon underway. The T says it wants to inspect the Type 9 trains to determine the cause of mechanical failure. The Type 9 started going into service in 2018. Nearly two-thirds of all Southwest Airlines flights in and out of Logan were delayed today. Earlier today, the airline halted departures of more than 1,700 flights nationwide because of technological problems. Southwest later said a firewall issue caused the airline systems to lose some operational data. Regular operations have resumed, but officials at Logan say residual delays may happen on Southwest flights this evening. Boston City Councilor Kenzie Bach is just weeks away from taking the helm of the Boston Housing Authority. The public housing organization serves roughly 9% of the city's population. She'll inherit a list of more than 40,000 families waiting for housing. WBUR's Amanda Beeland has more. 
Bach tells WBUR's Radio Boston the key to meeting increased demand for housing is to put more focus on chasing and obtaining federal dollars. And the best way to do that is to take advantage of the so-called fair cloth limit. According to Bach, the city is entitled to 2,500 more units through the federal policy. The city just needs to get the money to fund the initial construction. And I think we really saw in the um, pandemic what a disaster it is when these other problems connect then into housing and security. And so, you know, if we could add 2,500 of those units to our roles, that would just make an enormous difference. Bach says she's also excited to look at new ways to build additional units. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beland. It's 534. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Masters in Applied Economics at Boston College, providing an industry-aligned curriculum on campus, online, or hybrid. bc.edu slash msae. Should have mainly overcast skies overnight tonight. Still windy, temperatures falling to the low 40s. Tomorrow should climb again to the mid-50s. Lots of sunshine tomorrow. And Thursday, more sunshine. Highs in the mid-60s. Same nice weather ahead for Friday. This is WBUR in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Subaru with the 2023 Subaru Forester, featuring standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and safety technology. Love, it's what makes Subaru, Subaru. Learn more at Subaru.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Scott Detrow in Washington. Fox News has averted what was looking like it would be a defamation trial for the ages. The network settled with Dominion Voting Systems just before lawyers were to give their opening statements. The voting technology company had sued Fox over the baseless claims that it broadcast regarding the 2020 presidential election. The network will now pay nearly $790 million to Dominion. NPR media correspondent David Fulkenflick joins us now from Wilmington, Delaware, where all of this is playing out. David, $790 million, how big of a deal is that for Fox? Well, let's put this in perspective. That's a huge amount, the largest settlement Fox has ever reached or the Murdoch family uh, has ever reached for a single uh, allegation. but we got to put in the context that they have a lot of money. Yeah. You know, Fox News is the most important property at, uh, th- that they own, and it throws off billions of dollars a year, not just in revenues, but in profit. So they're going to be able to pay this out. I think the figure is really interesting. I looked at the numbers, $787.5 uh, million. That's just $12.5 million less than $800 million. Why does that figure matter? Well, that would be half of the $1.6 billion that Dominion was seeking in damages for defamation of its good name. So Fox can probably say, you know, quietly as it says, well, it's a lot of money, but it's less than half of what was being asked for us. Still in all for any company, any Fortune 500 company, still a huge amount of money to agree to uh, give, give away. Yeah, yeah. So Dominion Voting System CEO John Pulo spoke outside the courtroom right after the case was resolved. Here's a little bit of what he said. Fox has admitted to telling lies about Dominion that caused enormous damage to my company, our employees, and the customers that we serve. He also said that the company was seeking accountability. What was he referring to there? Well, I think part of it is that uh, Fox here put out uh, a statement, you know, that it false claims had been made 
about the elections, about the idea of fraud in the 2020 elections, and about Dominion being at the heart of them. You didn't hear an apology there, mm -hmm. actually. But Dominion would say, look, there was an acknowledgement of false claims being made, and also uh, that the public disclosure of the magnitude of this settlement is a, a kind of apology as well. It's certainly an acknowledgement of wrongdoing. And real quick, we had talked before about the possibility of an on-air apology being part of this. Any word on whether that's part of the settlement yet? No, but I think we're going to see what transpires. Certainly, Fox will be, you know, be required to report upon this. Yeah. Uh, in probably as stark and as uh, uh, austere a way possible, but we just don't know. It certainly hasn't been disclosed any of the details. I think we would know if there had been an apology. I think this is it. Yeah. And so, what what has Fox said publicly about the settlement today? Well, beyond uh, acknowledging, and this is the precise claim, that the court's rulings. Find, uh, acknowledging the court's rulings finding certain claims about Dominion to be false, note the passivity there, not acknowledging false. Mm -hmm. Fox was the one that broadcast them. They say, look, they're glad to avoid what would have been a divisive trial and that this is an opportunity for the nation to move on from these matters. And certainly, you know, the question of the 2020 race has loomed large. They're, I guess, signaling that they're not going to dwell on that in their broadcast to come. We have about 30 seconds. Can you remind us what was at stake here and why the settlement is such a big deal for Fox? It's a big deal for Fox because they're being held accountable, uh, not just in a sense for uh, these false claims being made about the 2020 elections and fraud, the false claims that Donald Trump was being cheated the election 2020, but more broadly, the idea that even a place as powerful as Fox News that walks with a swagger, that has such political sway and influence, can be held accountable, called to account for allowing others to peddle lie on their uh, broadcasts and actually embracing those lies and so doing to attract viewers. NPR's David Folkenflik, thanks so much. You bet. And at the U.S. Supreme Court today, justices heard arguments in a case testing how far employers must go to accommodate the religious views of their employees. NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg reports. Federal civil rights law requires employers to reasonably accommodate the religious beliefs of workers as long as that accommodation does not impose a, quote, undue hardship on the employer's business. Nearly a half century ago, the Supreme Court defined an undue hardship as a substantial additional cost. But it also said that the cost need not be more than de minimis, defined in the dictionary as a trifling amount. That language has long angered religious groups of all kinds, and now they're pressing the conservative Supreme Court supermajority to overrule or modify its prior ruling. Former postal worker Gerald Groff, an evangelical Christian, brought the case after the Postal Service signed a contract with Amazon for delivery of packages all seven days of the week. Groff was a carrier associate in rural Pennsylvania, assigned to fill in delivery gaps when more senior carriers were absent, and the new contract meant he could no longer take off every Sunday. He eventually quit his job and sued the Postal Service for violating his religious rights. At today's argument, Justice Sotomayor noted that at Groff's small post office of three carriers, others had to pick up the burden. He was required to work Saturday, Sunday, and holidays, and now he doesn't want to work half the days he was hired to work. Justice Kavanaugh focused on the language in the court's 1977 decision that said an employer would suffer an undue hardship if a religious accommodation would impose substantial additional costs on the employer. 
That, he suggested, seemed to be what happened in Groff's small postal office when he refused to work Sundays or religious holidays. On the facts here that you had one employee quit, one employee transfer, and another employee file a grievance as a result of what um, Mr. Groff was receiving in terms of treatment. Justice Kagan also stressed the significant burden on other workers when one is allowed to refuse work, and Justice Kavanaugh noted that other workers may wish to attend religious services on Sundays, too, though their religions may not require that they don't work on Sunday. Justice Alito suggested that it wouldn't cost the Postal Service that much money to pay an extra dollar an hour to hire someone else for those days. But Solicitor General Elizabeth Prelager, representing the Postal Service, replied that under the union contract, premium wages are time and a half. Replying to concerns about morale in the workforce, lawyer Aaron Street, representing Groff, said that morale would have to be bad enough to affect the efficient operation of the business. Justice Barrett. Give me an example of when the effect on coworkers would do that. Well, when a coworker quits... Uh, would be an obvious example. Quits because of morale. So it's just like morale has to get so bad. The employer has to wait until morale is so bad that that employees actually quit. Solicitor General Prelager conceded that the phrase de minimis in the 1977 decision was unfortunate, but she urged the court not to reverse the 46-year-old precedent, which she said has been interpreted for decades by the EEOC and the lower courts in a manner that generously accommodates the interests of religious employees. At the end of the day, it was unclear whether a majority of the court was more worried about imposing a burden on businesses and other employees, or whether the court's conservatives would once again come down on the side of religious interests. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Conspiracy theories are nothing new. Texas is still grappling with the aftermath of a false panic from the 1980s that saw dozens in the state accused of bizarre child sex abuse and satanic rituals. It went so far that it sent innocent people to prison. As Texas Public Radio's Paul Flav reports, to this day, people are still fighting to clear their records. And a heads up to listeners, the story does involve allegations of sexual abuse of children and murder. With a few strokes of a pen, Judge Christine Del Prado dismissed the case last week against 75-year-old Melvin Quinney, giving him his good name back. Mr. Quinney, I have signed the dismissal. This was the final courtroom step in Quinney's exoneration. He spent eight years in Texas prisons, had to register as a sex offender, and saw his four children pushed into foster care all for a crime the courts and his family now say never happened. And I thank you, sir, for your attendance. You are now discharged from this court. In 1991, Quinney's nine-year-old son told a court that his father sexually abused him. Quinney stood accused of leading a satanic cult that murdered children. Now an adult, his son recanted that testimony, saying he was pressured by his mother and her therapist to say those things. Mike Ware is Quinney's lawyer. This is a good day for justice. Standing on the courthouse steps in San Antonio, Ware says the accusations sound ridiculous now. 
He's with the Innocence Project of Texas and says during the 80s and 90s, the nation was going through a hysteria. Children were being coerced by ill-guided professionals to make these outrageous, demonstrably false accusations that have now been proven false beyond all doubt. According to a 1992 FBI report, hundreds of victims made fantastical and bizarre allegations that offenders had killed people as part of what is now called the Satanic Panic. Thousands were accused. Far fewer were incarcerated. Where help for other San Antonio women get out of prison for similar satanic sex abuse allegations nearly a decade ago? One Austin couple spent years in prison after being accused of abusing children in their daycare, at times transporting them by private jet to satanic conclaves. The problem with all these cases was the lack of evidence, says retired FBI agent Ken Lanning. No matter what the police did, no matter how hard they tried, over and over again, there simply was no evidence of certain aspects of these crimes. Despite the lack of corroborating evidence, people were convicted by juries based on the testimony of therapists and children. Lanning says investigators pushed the cases because they bought into the false satanic conspiracy. And a lot of them, it grew out of their personal religious beliefs that this is what they believe, that evil in the world, the devil was behind it. Quinny's ex-wife had become enraptured in religion. She was also mentally ill. After the exoneration, Quinny's son, John Parker's eyes are wet with tears. He says he still feels guilt over his role, but he has forgiven his deceased mother. Instead of getting the help with the real mental problems she was experiencing, she was, you know, persuaded and kept mentally ill with pseudoscience and superstition. Melvin Quinney says yes, he was wrongfully accused, but the impact on his family goes well beyond him. His ex-wife was unable to care for the children, so they were pushed into the state's foster care system, which did a lot of damage. Yeah, I was a victim, so what? My four children were the real victims in this whole fiasco that we went through. After 30 years, he says he hopes the final dismissal helps the family continue to heal. For NPR News, I'm Paul Flav in San Antonio. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Start your day tomorrow morning here at WBUR. Bay State College has a high-performing nursing program, but the college is facing the end of its accreditation. Find out how that could affect health care in Greater Boston tomorrow on Morning Edition. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Simone Lee at the ICA, a major exhibition the Globe calls breathtaking, now on view, icaboston.org. In sports, Boston Celtics continue their push for an NBA title tonight, 7 o'clock tip-off time at the Garden. They host the Atlanta Hawks in Game 2 of the first-round playoff series. Red Sox start up a three-game series with the Minnesota Twins tonight at Fenway Park. Chris Sale will take them on for Boston. The Twins will go with Sunny Gray, 7-10 start time. The forecast, more sunny than gray out there right now. Should become cloudy, though, overnight tonight. Temperatures down in the low 40s. Tomorrow, the mid-50s as sunshine returns. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. Climate change can feel big. While we don't have all the answers, WBUR is asking lots of questions. We're getting out there, meeting you where you are. From Boston's largest undeveloped green space to a heat island in one of the city's most popular neighborhoods. 
Discover how Boston is changing as we face climate reality. Stay with WBUR and explore our stories to help protect the planet at WBUR.org slash climate reality. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Ten years ago today, law enforcement officials were on a manhunt for two suspects who planted bombs at the finish line of the Boston Marathon. Investigators had released photos of them but didn't know their names. And that uncertainty led people to take to social media to use crowdsourcing to help find the perpetrators. The effort went badly awry. And that's had a huge effect on one family. Amory Sievertson from WBUR's Endless Thread podcast tells us the story. We should note this report mentioned suicide. About a month before the Boston Marathon in 2013, a Brown University student had gone missing. His name was Sunil Tripathi. He followed in his older sister, Sangeeta, and older brother, Ravi's footsteps to Brown University, played saxophone and did well in school, and he was just a, a, a normal kid who was off to his university. While he was in school, he started to show signs of depression. This is Neil Brofman. He made a documentary about Sunil called Help Us Find Sunil Tripathi. Sunil took a leave of absence his junior year and was living in, a, in an apartment in a house uh, off campus. He became very withdrawn and um, became more and more isolated until March 16th, which is the day that um, he went missing from his apartment. When Sunil's family found out he was missing, they started organizing friends and classmates to look for him. They're not big social media users, but this was a tool that they had at their disposal. And so they started their Facebook page, um, Help Us Find Sunil Tripathi, uh, and would put up photographs and notes of encouragement and appeals to people in hopes that someone would see it, you know, in the Boston area, in the greater Providence area, to, to try to get his name and his face in front of as many people as possible. The family's search for Sunil had been relentless. But the day of the marathon, his brother and sister took a breath. They had a friend who was running in the marathon. They had been looking for Sunil for uh, almost exactly a month. It was an incredibly intense, emotional period of time for them. And so they went to the, to the marathon to watch their friend. And then the bombing happened. We're interrupting your program because there have been two explosions today at the Boston Marathon. Two explosions near the finish line just a short while ago. A few days later, the FBI released grainy surveillance photos of the still unknown suspects. On social media, people started spreading the idea that maybe this missing Brown University student, Sunil, was one of the Boston Marathon bombers. There was a young woman who went to high school with Sunil. And she saw the photograph of suspect number two. And I imagine perhaps was looking at other things that people were talking about because she jumped into this conversation and said, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit freaked out right now. This, you know, the suspect two looks like this kid near me who's been missing. There were some who tried to rein in the rumor, but within hours of Sunil's name first being mentioned. It just descended into the darkest, you know, places of 
horrible racist comments and attacks against the family. Sunil's older sister, Sangeeta, says her family started noticing odd posts on the Facebook page dedicated to looking for him. And then we started going on the internet and, and Googling, like, what's happening, just like everyone else. And we ran into the Reddit mess that was emerging that night. And so we, we knew at that point that something was going on. We didn't really realize the magnitude of what was going on until I received, gosh, over 75 calls uh, from media throughout that night um, of people who started very gently saying, oh, Sunil is a person of interest, to, oh, Sunil is, um, you know, involved in the horrible tragedy that happened. These social media rumors were given oxygen when Sunil was named as a potential suspect by journalists from several prominent media outlets. WBUR was not one of those outlets. Sangeeta says all the family could think about was the impact this misguided attention might have on her brother. We still were hoping that he was alive and that he was somewhere and that he might even be hearing these awful things about him um, already not being in a good state. Sunil was not suspect number two. We'd learn less than 24 hours later that that was Jahar Sarnayev. But the torment this accusation caused the family and friends of Sunil would shine a light on the dangers of online vigilantism fueled by misinformation. Reddit, like any other social media platform, people congregate in these chat rooms and somebody set up the subreddit of, you know, let's find uh, the Boston bomber. Reddit shut the subreddit down, and Eric Martin, the former general manager of Reddit, apologized to the Tripathi family. Here's Eric in an interview for Neil Brofman's documentary. I don't think Reddit was responsible for everything that happened, but we have a responsibility and we, you know, yeah, we could have, you know, maybe there are things we could have done that would have stopped or limited or, or, or changed the situation. Reddit declined to be interviewed for this story. They said in a statement that their policies, quote, strictly prohibit posting someone's personal information, including for the purpose of harassment or vigilantism. So my dream is that somehow there would be like a button before you could click send that says, hello, there's a person on the other end of the line. Does this, is this something you would say to your friend face to face? But of course, that, that's not the nature of social media. Beyond what happened online, Sunil's sister said what really broke her heart was that journalists echoed the claims. I was very naive in thinking that there was a firewall between somebody in a hoodie, you know, who's blogging on social media and a professional journalist. And what I found was that there wasn't. About a week after the marathon bombing, after Sarnayev had been identified as the real suspect, Sunil's body was recovered from the Providence River. He had died by suicide before the bombings. I'm so glad in certain ways that my brother was not alive because I don't, I don't know what the impact on him would have been. A decade after his death, Sangeeta says her family will always feel Sunil's absence. Time passes and new things happen, but my entire family and I still have a, a big Sunil-shaped hole in our heart. I have a, a young child now and, you know, think constantly about that he'll never know his uncle, Sunil, and that there's so much life that, that he didn't get to live. And the connection of his death to this hurtful spread of misinformation stays with the Tripathis. I was not a big social media person before the search for my brother and 
definitely was not after. I am very tender and aware of the power both for good and for incredible harm. Sunil's story is a reminder, 10 years later, to lead with compassion, online and off. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amory Sievertson. If you're having suicidal thoughts and need someone to talk to, call or text the Suicide Crisis Lifeline at 988. This story comes to us from the team behind WBUR's podcast, Endless Thread. Find the full episode at wbur.org slash Endless Thread. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Peacock with the new original series, Mrs. Davis, about the world's most powerful artificial intelligence and the nun devoted to destroying her. From Tara Hernandez and Damon Lindelof, streams April 20th on Peacock. From Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs. From hydrangeas to lilacs to evergreens, the full collection is at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com NPR. From Drexel University, whose cooperative education program lets students explore a future career, build a resume, and earn a salary before graduation. More at drexel.edu slash ambition can't wait. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this evening. A lovely evening it is, and tonight should become mostly cloudy, breezy, down around the low 40s. Tomorrow should make it to the mid-50s as sunshine emerges. Should be a bright day tomorrow. Another one on Thursday, mainly sunny skies, moving up to the mid-60s. 55 degrees now in Boston at 559. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service, a dealer alternative. Your local mechanic and tire dealer serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities. DirectTire.com. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A 20-year-old woman is dead after she and her friends were looking for another friend's home in upstate New York and accidentally pulled into the wrong driveway. The homeowner has been charged with murder. The subject came out on his porch for whatever reason and fired two shots, one of which struck the vehicle. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. investigation coming up. Also another shooting, this one in Kansas City, where a black teenager was trying to pick up his siblings but rang the doorbell at the wrong address. The white resident shot him through a glass door. The violence in Sudan has not let up and there's danger the fighting could draw the country into a wider conflict. Also, with the Supreme Court administrative stay on Mifepristone set to expire late tomorrow, the future of access to the abortion pill is uncertain. It's 601 News Headlines and Wall Street Numbers are coming up next.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The 84-year-old man who shot black teenager Ralph Yarl in Kansas City, Missouri, surrendered to law enforcement this afternoon and is now free on bond. Madeline Fox from member station KCUR is more. Prosecutors filed charges and issued a warrant for Andrew Lester's arrest on Monday evening, four days after he shot 16-year-old Ralph Yarl twice after Yarl mistakenly rang his doorbell. Lester is charged with two felony counts, assault in the first degree and armed criminal action. He's facing up to a life sentence. Kansas City's police chief is facing calls to resign because her office released Lester after initially bringing him in right after the shooting, and because she said the 84-year-old was not a flight risk. For NPR News, I'm Madeline Fox in Kansas City. Dominion Voting Systems and Fox News have reached a settlement averting a trial. Dominion sued Fox and its parent company over baseless claims the network aired following the 2020 presidential election. Dominion argued the falsehoods, including a claim the company's voting machine switched votes from then-President Donald Trump to Joe Biden, damaged its business and credibility. Fox has agreed to pay $787.5 million. Republican-led House Oversight Panel ramping up its look into a federal program after widespread reports of migrant child labor. NPR's Carly Gonzalez says a hearing has raised pressure on the Health and Human Services Department. The House Oversight Subpanel grilled the head of the Office of Refugee Resettlement over reports migrant children were forced to work. Subpanel Chairman Glenn Grothman pushed the program's director, Robin Dunn-Marcos, to explain a New York Times report that the program lost track of 85,000 migrant children. We uh, do not track or monitor. The answer is no. There are 85,000 kids who came across the border. We don't know. Is that right? Apparently it is. Top subpanel Democrat Robert Garcia agreed. There's concern anytime children are placed in unsafe conditions and called the cases of child labor heartbreaking and unacceptable. Claudia Grisales, NPR News. The capital. Ahead of the 13th anniversary of a huge spill in the Gulf of Mexico, groups are calling on the Biden administration to tro- stop drilling. NPR's Jeff Brady has more. The Deepwater Horizon accident killed 11 workers, and the subsequent oil spill fouled the environment for years. A climate-focused budget bill last year mandated new lease sales for offshore drilling. But Diane Hoskins with Oceanus says President Biden should live up to his campaign promise to stop new drilling on public land and in public waters. President Biden can still prevent new drilling, help protect the climate despite those mandates, and, you know, we're urging him to do so. Interior Secretary Deb Holland earlier this month said a new five-year plan will be finalized by the end of this year. Jeff Brady, NPR News. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The U.S. Air Force has opened an investigation into the government document leaked by Airman First Class Jack Teixeira at Joint Base Cape Cod. This will include an investigation into the Air National Guard unit the airman worked for. While that investigation is underway, the Air Force has temporarily reassigned any intelligence work done by that unit to other parts of the Air Force. WBUR's Amy Sokolow has more. The 21-year-old Teixeira was charged in Boston Friday for sharing the highly classified documents in a chat room on the social media platform Discord. In a Senate subcommittee hearing today, Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall said the investigation will include any policy and protocol breaches at the Cape Cod base. He also said enforcement of need-to-know status will be critical going forward. Any airman or guardian or anyone in uniform could not appreciate the seriousness of this material and how damaging it would be to have it get out in the public domain. That, that's a fundamental 
problem of its own right. Teixeira will be in a Boston federal court tomorrow for a detention hearing. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amy Sokolow. The Air Force has chosen a Western Mass military base to be home to 18 F-35 fighter jets. Barnes Air National Guard Base in Westfield will house the new planes pending an environmental impact analysis next year. The Air Force made the decision after site visits and accounting for community support, environmental factors, and cost. U.S. Senators Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey said in a joint statement the decision will enhance national security and strengthen the regional economy. Barnes is one of three bases across the U.S. that will get the new fighter jets. New data shows sports wagering is generating a lot of cash for the state of Massachusetts, and that's thanks especially to bets that are placed online. WBR's Fausto Menard has more on the latest figures from the State Gaming Commission. The state's three casinos and six online wagering sites generated $47 million in taxable sports wagering revenue last month. $45 million of that stemmed from bets placed online and through mobile apps. In February, before online sports betting was allowed in Massachusetts, the state's three casinos generated $2 million in taxable sports wagering revenue. Bottom line, the state took in more than $9 million in taxes from sports wagering in March and nearly $30 million more from traditional casino gambling. Most of that money goes back to Massachusetts cities and towns in the form of local aid. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. Red Sox have put Chris Sale up against Sonny Gray tonight as the Sox and Minnesota Twins kick off a three-game series at Fenway. The Celtics continue their push for an NBA title tonight. They host the Atlanta Hawks in Game 2 of their first-round playoff series. Forecast for tonight, overcast. Then tomorrow, sunshine, with temperatures rising to the mid-50s. 55 degrees now in Boston at 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Scott Detrow in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. We're going to hear the latest on the legal limbo for a commonly used abortion pill and why access to that medication could change as soon as this week. More on that in a few minutes. First, though, the white man accused of shooting a black teenager who simply rang the wrong doorbell in Missouri is back in police custody. 84-year-old Andrew Lester turned himself into Kansas City Police this afternoon. It comes a day after authorities issued a warrant for his arrest and charged him with two felony counts for allegedly opening fire unprovoked on 16-year-old Ralph Yarl last Thursday. Yarl survived with gunshot wounds to his head and arm. The lack of immediate charges in the case sparked weekend protests in Kansas City. The city's mayor, Quentin Lucas, has been in touch with Yarl's family and joins me now. Mayor Quentin Lucas, welcome to All Things Considered. It is good to be back with you. First of all, how is Ralph doing? I have been astonished, frankly. It is a miracle that he is out of the hospital. He is recovering, despite the fact that Ralph was shot in the head and in the arm. It is something that is just tremendous, thanks to medical professionals here in Kansas City and in his own family, having a number of nurses and others. Mm -hmm. So we know it's a long road ahead, but it has been a good one. Okay. Well, this all started again because Ralph Yarrow was trying to pick up his younger brothers, and he had the wrong address. And police did take Andrew Lester, the accused shooter, into custody on Thursday, but they let him go after a few hours, citing a need to interview Yarrow first. Was that the wrong move in your mind? 
I think we're going to have a, a pretty thorough review about the steps that, that were taken and ways we could always do better in the future. What I will say is that thanks in large part to a lot of the public outcry that we heard and the hard work done by detectives, we were very able, quickly able to get charges in. Mm-hmm. But I think there will be real questions about all of that along the way. You mentioned that outcry. Do you think these charges and this arrest would have come without protests and public attention? I think the protests and public attention were, were vital in amplifying the issue. I, I think, heck, it's it's how I largely learned about it as well. So I will not marginalize the work of the people in making sure that this was centered, including Ralph's own family. I think that in our after action is something else we, we need to make sure we look at. I think there was going to be a real thorough investigation done, but I think the speed, I think it has been aided by the fact that there are a lot of people who've been asking questions about why this man was not in custody, why this man was not charged. Mm-hmm. Do you have a timeline for that that kind of review, and how direct of a role would you play in it? You know, there are a lot of things that I can do. There are some things I can't, but I certainly have a bully pulpit as a mayor to make sure that we have those conversations. I've been in regular contact with our chief of police, and so I would expect it to be a conversation of days and weeks rather than coming back over it a year from now or two years from now. Step one was trying to get to justice. We saw charges yesterday. I'm very mm-hmm. happy about that, but I know we have a lot more work to do to get the community more trust. And I want to ask you something about those charges. We know from the police documents that Lester did mention that Yarl was black and said that he was, quote, scared to death when he saw Yarl, but the county prosecutor declined to bring any hate crime charges in this case. Do you agree with that decision? I think there are very serious charges that have been filed here. I am a lawyer, but I don't know the full panoply of potential charges at issue. What I do know is that the 84-year-old defendant, Andrew Lester, faces up to life imprisonment with the charges that have been filed. Mm-hmm. I, I expect him to be convicted, but I, I know there will be more public outcry about hate crimes charges coming up even later today in Kansas City. And we look to, I believe, federal prosecutors who may be making those determinations. You know, you wrote on Twitter that it's on us to stop something like this from happening. How do you practically get there? You call out racism where it exists. In a lot of states like mine, the state of Florida and so many others, you're seeing this attack on diversity, equity and inclusion, which, as I see, is just basically saying, let's have a status quo of racism. Let's make it so folks like this defendant, Andrew Lester, are able to, I think, even just grow in their views of anti-black racism. I've said in a few different forums that that if and if the victim, Ralph, were not black, I don't think he would have been shot. Mm-hmm. And I say that from experience lived as a black man in America, as a person in America, and hearing about these stories on your network and others again and again and again. It is in the hearts and minds of people we need to make changes. And then one other change, we cannot just fetishize guns like to the end of time. Everybody is told to just, if you're afraid, bring out mm-hmm. your gun, brandish mm-hmm. it. It's a huge issue. That's Kansas City Mayor Quentin Lucas. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. And now to another tragedy involving a shooting in front of a home, all due to a mistake. Officials in upstate New York say a homeowner fired a gun into a vehicle that had accidentally turned into his driveway on Saturday, killing a woman inside that car. Lucas Willard of member station WAMC reports. Police say Kaylin Gillis was killed while searching for a friend's house in a rural stretch of Washington County, New York. Sheriff Jeff Murphy spoke to reporters on Monday. The first call came in at 9.53 p.m. on a Saturday night. It was a 911 call reporting that a 20-year-old female had been shot. 
Murphy said when the vehicle carrying Gillis and three friends turned down the wrong driveway, 65-year-old Kevin Monahan came to the door and fired twice at the vehicle. He is being held at a nearby jail on second-degree murder. Murphy said he did not think there was any interaction between Monahan and the people he shot at. This is a, a very sad case of some young adults that were looking for a friend's house and ended up at this man's house and decided to come out with a firearm and discharge him. Hebron, where the shooting took place, is a small town on the Vermont border. Town Supervisor Brian Campbell said he was dumbfounded by the incident. He said he knew Monahan, a local contractor, as normal as can be. Campbell said it's very easy for people to get lost on the back roads of the small community where cell service is spotty at best. You don't know how many times I've been awakened early in the morning, people lost, run out of gas, over a ditch. You go tow them out, put them on their merry way. You never think of your own safety, even. The sheriff said after the shooting, the young people drove for several minutes to get cell service and call for help. An online fundraiser that quickly raised thousands of dollars features a photo of Gillis shared widely since the shooting. Greg Barthelmas, superintendent of the Schuylerville Central School District, where Gillis attended high school, knew Gillis personally. That picture of her speaks volumes to her character, of how she was as a student, very nice, very loving and fun, outgoing. Barthelmas said Gillis was a cheerleader, a member of Future Farmers of America, and an artist. Monahan's attorney, Kurt Mousert, says three vehicles pulled into Monahan's driveway, and his client was frightened when he pulled the trigger. For NPR News, I'm Lucas Willard in Albany. The abortion pill methapristone remains available in many states and fully on the market today, but that could change soon. NPR's Sarah McCammon joins us now with an update on that. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Elsa. So, I mean, there's been so much back and forth, Sarah, in the courts the past 10 days or so around access to this abortion pill. Can you just remind us where do things stand at this moment? Well, at this moment, an administrative stay from the U.S. Supreme Court is still in effect. It is temporarily preserving the status quo. And that means that mifepristone is still available in states where abortion is legal. It can be sent through the mail in those states. But Elsa, that may not be the case for long. That stay from the Supreme Court, which stems from a federal case out of Texas, it expires late tomorrow night. Tomorrow night. Okay. And then what happens? Well, if the court were to do nothing, as of tomorrow night, mifepristone would still be technically on the market, but with new limitations, at least in some states. Just to back up slightly, this case started with a lawsuit when anti-abortion groups sued the Food and Drug Administration over its approval of mifepristone in 2000. That pill, of course, is used in a majority of abortions in this country now. A conservative federal judge in Texas, Matthew Kaczmarek, sided with that group earlier this month and blocked the FDA approval. The Biden administration appealed. And then the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals said mifepristone could stay on the market, but, but with some significant restrictions, the most important one being it could no longer be mailed. So the Justice Department then went to the Supreme Court. Justice Sam Alito said they would keep things as they are right now until that stay expires tomorrow at 11.59 p.m. But legal experts I've talked to say they think the court will weigh in in some fashion. Wow. Okay. what a windy path. That is all what the Justice Department wants at this point. But what are anti-abortion groups asking for? So the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is representing the anti-abortion groups in this case, they're urging the Supreme Court to allow the restrictions from the Fifth Circuit, that lower court, to take effect. 
So, so that, again, would mean pills could not be sent in the mail. They could only be prescribed up to seven weeks of pregnancy, down from 10. Okay. But even if the Fifth Circuit decision does take effect, it could be complicated, Elsa, by another lawsuit in play here. You may remember a federal judge in Washington state has said that Mifepristone should remain fully available in the 17 states and D.C. that filed a lawsuit in his court. That conflict between these two cases is something that also could come up before the Supreme Court. Oof. Okay, can we just step back for a moment? It's been less than a year since the court overturned Roe v. Wade. What do you think the larger significance is here of, of how the court decides to move forward on this? Yeah, whatever the court does is going to be very closely watched because it could tell us a lot about what to expect, both in terms of this case, abortion pill access, and future cases related to reproductive health. I talked to Greer Donnelly today. She's a law professor at the University of Pittsburgh. And she says, as counterintuitive as it might sound, she thinks the Supreme Court may actually be the friendliest court so far to the Biden administration administration's arguments here. So the Fifth Circuit um, is more restrained than Judge Kaczmarek, but still extremely conservative. And then you have the Supreme Court, which is the Supreme Court that overturned Roe versus Wade and is, you know, one of the most conservative Supreme Courts we've had in decades, but it's still the least conservative judicial body to hear the case. The court is being asked to consider some procedural issues like standing here. But then there are these bigger picture questions this case raises, Elsa, like whether the courts have the power to overturn the FDA's approval. And that could have implications for lots of other issues. That is NPR's Sarah McCammon. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR coming up on Marketplace at 6.30. Netflix is in hot water with subscribers after it failed to stream a live reunion of its hit show Love is Blind. Question is, is the streaming service starting to look like cable TV, but worse? That's coming up on Marketplace at 6.30. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Fairbank and Perry Goldsmiths in Concord helping transform your outdated, unused jewelry into fresh and wearable pieces for everyday life. Fairbankandperry.com. It was an energetic day of trading on Wall Street. Not a lot of movement for the close, though. The Dow lost a small fraction of a percent. S&P was up about a tenth of a percent, and the Nasdaq was down also a fraction of a percent. This is 90.9 WBUR. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. In the forecast, a pretty nice evening out there overnight tonight. Should have mostly cloudy skies, breezy, down around the low 40s. Tomorrow could make it to the mid-50s as the sun shines through. Should be a bright day tomorrow. And then another one on Thursday, mainly sunny skies moving up to the mid-60s. 55 degrees still in the Boston area. This is 90.9 WBUR. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Good News Garage. Over 5,500 donated cars given to New Englanders in need since 1996. Tax deductions and free towing. Goodnewsgarage.org. And Cambridge Naturals, with customer service specialists available daily to help with your health and wellness questions. In Cambridge and Brighton and at CambridgeNaturals.com. 
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Scott Detrow. This, so far, is the sound of the ceasefire in Sudan. Sudan's army is not backing down, and the powerful paramilitary group they're at war with is not backing down either. Nearly 200 people have been killed and thousands more injured after four days of conflict in the capital of Khartoum and across Sudan. The two warring generals at the heart of the conflict have brought one of Africa's largest countries to a standstill. NPR's Emmanuel Akinwotu joins us now from Lagos. Hey, Emmanuel. Hi. And this ceasefire was put in place to try and get some help to millions in need of humanitarian assistance. But so far, it seems the fighting has not stopped, right? Yes, it's it's actually the second time the ceasefire has been called and at least so far has failed to hold. And the impact on people is profound and getting worse by the hour. You know, the fighting has turned homes in Sudan, residential streets, much of the country into war zones. Some hospitals have been taken over by fighters or are running out of supplies. And there are students trapped in schools, families sheltering at home, struggling for food, struggling for power and and water. You know, since the conflict started, I've been talking to a woman called Muja Khatib. She's 42 and she's staying alone at home in Khartoum. On yesterday's show, she shared how she's been struggling. You know, she misses her son who can't make it back home because of the fighting. Today, I checked in with her again, just after the ceasefire was meant to start. They said there is a truce now, but there is no truce. I can hear the gunshot and I hear an airplane. Yeah, it's very close. I'm not sure if you can hear the sound of the bombing. I'm in my balcony now. You know, like other people I've spoken to, she's just tired and so angry that this has been inflicted on them. And by two generals who seem bent on serving their own interests rather than the country's. Tell us more about these two generals. Who are they and what are their endgames here? Well, first, there's General Abdul Fattah al-Bahan. He, he leads the army and is essentially the de facto leader of Sudan. This is him speaking in 2021, promising he'd deliver Sudan's first free elections. And this is Lieutenant General Mohammed Hamad Hamdan Dagolo, or widely known as Hameti. He's effectively been Bahan's deputy up until now. And here he is speaking to Al Jazeera this weekend after the fighting began. He leads the notorious and powerful militia group called the Rapid Support Forces. It largely evolved from the Janjaweed militia that was responsible for atrocities in Darfur. You know, decades of warfare that he led on behalf of the Sudanese government made him extremely wealthy and powerful. Both of these men, these generals, they thrived under the old regime, under Omar al-Bashir, and then they helped depose him after the revolution in 2019. That revolution, you know, inspired millions of people in Sudan and the wider world and brought this promise of, like, a new democratic Sudan. But that promise under these men has been squandered. And, you know, after Bashir, there was briefly a civilian-led government, but both these generals actually launched a coup against that government two years ago in 2021. Then they insisted to the Sudanese people and convinced the international community that they could lead the, the country back to civilian rule. But now we're locked in a war for power and supremacy between them. That's Emmanuel Akinwotu following the latest on Sudan from Lagos, Nigeria. Thanks so much. Thanks, Scott.
listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. In a courthouse in Moscow today, a judge rejected an appeal against the continued detention of American journalist Evan Gershkovich. This hearing was the first time the Wall Street Journal reporter had been seen in public since he was detained by Russian security agents on suspicion of espionage late last month. NPR's Charles Maines was at the courthouse today and joins us now. Hi, Charles. Hi there. So what was the scene like at the hearing today? Well, you know, this is a closed trial, uh, which is standard for espionage cases in Russia. But this portion, frankly, was was more open than I expected. You know, journalists were allowed briefly into the courtroom where they could see Gershkovich. Uh, he was inside a glass enclosure, what, what Russians would call the aquarium, uh, dressed in a plaid blue shirt and jeans. You know, he looked fairly relaxed, chatting with his lawyers and occasionally smiling at onlookers, uh, despite masked security officers flanked to both sides. Now, this hearing was about trying to appeal the terms of Gershkovich's detention, in other words, perhaps placing him under house arrest or release pending trial. And as you noted in the intro, it didn't work. You know, the court prolonged his detention despite what uh, Gershkovich's lawyers said was an offer of more than $600,000 bail by the Wall Street Journal's parent company, Dow Jones. Hmm. Well, the State Department here has officially designated Gershkovich as wrongfully detained, right? So were U.S. officials on hand there? Did they say anything about all of this? Yeah, they were. You know, U.S. Ambassador to Russia, Lynn Tracy, and consular officers were present for the open portions of the hearing, uh, including the judge's ruling. Uh, I should say I was in a separate room for media watching a video feed. Uh, But afterward, outside the courthouse, Ambassador Tracy said she found it troubling to see, in her words, an innocent journalist held in these circumstances. She also noted that she had finally been given access to Sigurskovich in prison, but only yesterday, after two weeks of trying to get consular access. I can report that he is in good health and remains strong despite his circumstances. You know, and Tracy repeated calls for Gershkovich's immediate release while also mentioning another American currently in jail on espionage charges in Russia. That's Paul Whelan. Uh, Tracy said both men uh, deserve to be reunited with their families. Okay, so the ambassador says Gershkovich is in good health. You say he seemed to be in pretty good spirits at the courthouse. Do, Do we know more about the conditions at the prison? Well, we know some details. Uh, He's fed kasha, Russian porridge, for breakfast every morning, which Mm. his lawyers say he doesn't mind. Uh, His mom used to feed it to him when he was growing up. Mm. Uh, He's also been writing letters, lots of them, uh, responding to all the mail he's been getting from supporters. Uh, And he's been doing a lot of reading, including making his way through uh, Leo Tolstoy's classic War and Peace. Uh, That's according to one of his lawyers, uh, Tatyana Nushkina. He he read a lot of books, and maybe he he, uh, told us that maybe he will write uh, some some, uh, good uh, novel at the end of the story, about himself (laughs) at the end of the story. You know, and I know that sounds a little lighthearted, but I think it just speaks to the sense of resilience that Gershkovich has. That said, I mean, the story is he remains in detention, will remain for the foreseeable future. Where do things go from here? Well, Russian officials have repeatedly said Gershkovich was caught, in their words, a red-handed, uh, collecting information about Russia's military-industrial complex uh, without providing, I should say, any evidence thus far. Uh, meanwhile, Gershkovich and the Journal have been adamant these charges are bogus and they want to fight them. Uh, they argue that talking to people in Russia was Gershkovich's job as a reporter. Uh, the Journal issued a statement saying that it found today's decision disappointing, but but not unexpected. And Gershkovich's lawyers say he'll again appeal his detention, although that next hearing won't come until late May. That is NPR's Charles Maines in Moscow. Thank you, Charles. Thank you. This is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR in sports playoff fever in Boston. Celtics host the Hawks tonight in Game 2 of their first-round playoff series. For all Celts and Bruins home playoff games, the city is closing off Canal Street to traffic to accommodate outdoor dining. After an ugly marathon Monday loss to the Angels, Red Sox will try to set things right tonight as they launch a series with the Minnesota Twins. It'll be Chris Sale versus Sonny Gray. First pitch is at 7:10 tonight. It's Earth Week, and the Common Podcast has plans to explore it every day. Today, hop on a boat to the Boston Harbor Islands to investigate sea level rise and erosion. Find the Common on your podcast app. This is WBUR. It's 6:30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by PNC Bank, celebrating all who go above and beyond to give kids the best start in life. PNC is committed to early education. More at pncgrowupgreat.com.